episode 258, Mitch unfiltered after a week absence. Where were you a week ago? I missed you. Where were you? Try not to be jealous when I tell you I was in Tri-Cities, Washington. That's not really a place, but it's Pasco, Richland, and Kennewick. The Tri-Cities. It was awesome. <laughs> Basketball or softball? Uh, this was a softball tournament. Yes, and? for her new club team. And? Well, if you if you must know, I Mitch, must and know. thank you for asking. Yes. Um, <laughs> they played three games on the first day. They won 48-1 to one by a combined score. They oh. were the number one seed. Yeah, dominating. And then on Sunday, they take the best four, one place, four, two, three, the whole thing. We were number one and lost four to three in the first game. Ended up getting fourth overall out of 17. Sounds like a one seed losing to to a 16 seed in the opening round of the NCAA tournament. Sounds like Virginia. Virginia would be a uh, a, a one seed losing to a four. How dare you? First of all, yes, 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 yes. Do not diminish the great AB. When you look up in the dictionary... The definition of frustrating NFL games for fans. Do you see a picture of the Seahawks Bengals images? Do they pop up on your screen when you type in a Google search of frustrating NFL games or not? Was that not the most frustrating? Well, one of the most frustrating Seahawks games you could ever watch. It was. I was just kind of glad it was just a regular season game. What game six or five or what? If that would have been like a playoff game or a game to make the playoffs, I would have. It could have been worse is my point. But yeah, it was torture in the history of the National Football League. Now, when I or the history of football, forget the National Football League since football was invented. Was (laughs) there ever a first drive that was less representative of what was going to come to follow <laughs> for an offense the rest of the the rest of the three hours? I'm looking it up right now, and it uh, looks like no. The answer is no to that. Yes. Nope. You are correct. Oh, my God. <laughs> they lose the toss in Cincinnati. The Bengals defer, so the Bengals kick to the Seahawks. Let me tell you something. It was like Raquel Welch. It was ageless beauty. 11 plays, 75 yards, Running, passing, everything worked right down the field. You don't settle for three. You stick it into the end zone. It's seven nothing. And everybody's looking at each other like going, what? My God, that was beautiful. That was poetry in motion. That was Pat Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. That was the Dolphins of 1985. I mean, that was was gorgeous. And then what happened? What the hell happened the next two hours and 45 minutes? You watch that drive and you think, okay, if they ever have first and goal on a seven, that'll be easy compared to what I just saw, right? They'll have no trouble with a first and goal and no problem at all. Uh, Yeah. Wasted a fantastic defensive performance. Do you realize that in 2023, the Seahawks went on the road to Cincinnati two weeks after they suffocated the New York Giants on that Monday night game. And we all said, oh, my God, the Giants are the worst offensive team ever. Two weeks later, they go to Cincinnati to face a really potent offensive team. Now, they're not playing their best, but they've got quarterbacks. They've got running backs. They've got wide receivers. They're loaded on offense at the skill positions. You realize in 2023... They limited the Bengals to 214 yards in the game. 214 total yards. Do you realize that the Bengals averaged four yards a play over the course of the entire afternoon and you still didn't do enough offensively to fly back to Seattle with the win? That, to me, is why 
it's got to be one of the more frustrating games for a fan to watch when your defense does that and you just can't do enough offensively. Absolute torture watching that. And I just feel sorry for the guys in the locker room icing their legs and icing their shoulders, all that work on defense, and you're going home with a loss. You may have lost 56 nothing for all I care, right? A loss is a loss. Yeah. To get that kind of of performance. Yeah, but to get that kind of performance and come away with an L is really frustrating. Oh, God. Yeah. Now, we start the season asking the question, we know the Seahawks offense is going to be really good. they got two great running backs. The quarterback's coming off of a career year. They've added to their wide receiving core. they got lots of tight ends. They're going to be fine offensively. The question is, at the beginning of the season, <laughs> can they get just enough defense yeah. to win like 10 or 11 or 12 games to go along with it? We know the offense is going to be fine. It's the oh, question. Yeah. The question surround the deal. How much defensive improvement can they get? And five weeks, six weeks later, it's the exact opposite question. Well, well, they're great defensively. Now can they get enough <laughs> offense with all those guys to be able to get over the hump? It is so maddening being in that. Go to the ballet. This is why you go to the ballet. Yeah. You don't have stress. You don't have frustration like this. Any chance you can call me and let me know when both the offense and the defense <laughs> are going to play well? I then I'll for sure watch every minute of that one. Just I let me know, okay? You. Would you please? I can't help you. Can't. you. Mitch okay. Unfiltered right. is available everywhere. Subscribe on any podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever you'd like. If you're more, if you like more regular, shorter shows, become a Mitch Unfiltered patron. MitchUnfiltered.com, $5 a month. Gets you four shows each week, soon to be five. The Peace Show with Danny O'Neill shooting the shit with Slick around the NFL with Randy Mueller. Seahawks Note Table, Brian Nemhauser, Brady Henderson, and coming soon. The return of the Kraken note table because the Kraken are back in action in the National Hockey League. MitchUnfiltered.com if you want to become a patron. All it does is cost you $5 a month. And by the way, all of those shows, those five shows-ish, they're like 20 minutes, 25 minutes each, 30 minutes. So not like this, you know, four hours of complete boredom. They're 30 minutes of (laughs) action-packed excitement. Uh, If the five bucks is a legitimate problem for you, just contact me and I'll get you set up. Beat the boys. Week seven is on the way. I owe you three games and I owe you a password. The three games, Commanders at Giants, Browns at Colts, Steelers at Rams. Password is peace, P-E-A-C-E, because of what's going on in the world. Your guests on this episode, 258. We'll do the Seahawks no table. Brady Henderson from Cincinnati. Brian Nemhauser, the Hawk blogger. We'll try to figure out what went wrong. Is it all on you? The whole world is bashing Gino. Bashing Gino. Gino got sacked a million times. He doesn't get rid of the ball. He threw interceptions. We don't believe in Gino. He's getting killed on social media. My answer to it all is, yeah, maybe it was all Gino's fault on Sunday. But here's the problem. I can't see from watching these games on TV what he sees down the field. Yeah. Are wide receivers open? Are they running free and he's not throwing the ball to them? Is he not seeing receivers that are open? Or are all the receivers covered and they're not getting separation? Is the offensive scheme Are they not getting guys open? Is he looking down the field, not seeing anybody open, not having anybody open, and then getting sacked? I got to know more. To me... I don't have enough information based on what I'm allowed to see on a TV broadcast 
to be able to tell you that Sunday was all Geno Smith's fault. And it seems like everybody in Seattle, who was also watching, by the way, the same television broadcast that I was watching, <laughs> they all have enough information. They right. know Geno Smith is at fault. So I, I got to see more before I draw that conclusion. I, I tweeted out after the game, sacks, 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 shaking my head. It felt like just sacks nonsense. So I looked it up. Do you know how many sacks Cincinnati had? Probably about three or four, right? They had three. <laughs> well, there they was had pressure. three. Well, there was pressure, and he was throwing the ball. They away. were big ones. Yeah, they, they were three big sacks. That's why they. It felt like thirteen. It did but it feel was like really more. three. It did feel it like did, more. didn't it? Yeah. So, do you know whether receivers were open? Well, as you know, I'm I'm in the huddle with them at all times yeah. in every game, and yeah. I can see exactly down the field. I, I I think a lot of it for people, you know, it's it's kind of a it's a cheap outlet. Gino, what's he doing? He threw the interceptions. Kind of, a, it's a little cheap to just blame it all on him. But I think. When when it's when you have to just get rid of the ball and you don't, I think those are the things that really bother people the most. Look, if you threw the ball straight up in the air to have it come down in the end zone, you know, on fourth down, at least you got a 50-50 shot. But just to take a sack and just to go down without even throwing it, I think that's probably what's killing the fans the most. But that's one play you're talking about. Yeah, it's one. It's one play. And the fans are saying, oh, my God, Gino was horrid all day. It might be fact that Geno Smith lost the game. For all I know, they're going to sit down with the all-22s. They're all going to look at the film, and they're going to decide, you know what, our quarterback cost us the game this week. I don't have any problem if that's the conclusion. I just don't know how people understand that from watching the television. I can't see. It's frustrating. I can't yeah. see what's down the field, what he's missing. And you, you say he was only sacked his, three times. I can't see. Yeah. You can't see his progression. Did he throw to the right ball? Did he throw to the right receiver? Oh, no. You can't see any of that stuff. You know, doesn't he have a couple linemen who are young and not the starters in there with them as well? Correct. Is the blocking to blame? Can we shit on them a little bit as right. well? I mean, right. I think it's a little right. little cheap to just throw it all on Gino. All right. Guess Nemhauser and Henderson. So the Seahawks no table will try to figure out what went wrong in the close call loss to the Bengals on Sunday afternoon, dropping the Seahawks, by the way, to three and two. New Heisel. New Heisel's great this week. A lot on the UW Oregon game. Great. A lot on everything else going on in college football. What a game. What a classic. You and I will talk Ooh. about it in segment one. And then to double down on that conversation, Christian Capel, my buddy from On Montlake, formerly of The Athletic, reflects upon that monumental day at Husky Stadium. He covered it. He was there from beginning to end, starting at game day, ESPN game day, and then a game that was supposed to be exciting. Oh, my God, look what happened. It was exciting. It was everything everybody <laughs> had hoped for, and then some. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll triple down on that conversation. Any chance the uh, eldest Levy son set his alarm for 5 a.m. on Saturday to make his way down to game day? He was up before 5 a.m. because he worked for the marketing <laughs> department, the sports marketing. He's, what? He works those games for the Huskies, and he was telling me, Leading up to that, that there was a chance he was going to have to get up at 1 a.m. to help set up for ESPN game day. Oh, man. So up at 1 a.m. What is he, Tracy Taylor doing the freaking traffic? <laughs> I mean, holy shit. So as it turns out, I don't think that he ended up working on game day, but yet on ESPN's show. But yes, he was uh, he was up early and on the uh, on the field during the Huskies game against Oregon. Right. I hate to say it, but just having a good football team or a great football team at your school just makes it so much more effing fun, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a blast when your football team is good. What a what a great time for him and all the students at UW. 
Episode 258, Hot Shot Scott, presented by John Waterstrat and Fireside Home Solutions, the title sponsor of Beat the Boys. Your week seven password is PEACE. P-E-A-C-E, all lowercase, a thousand bucks from Fireside Home Solutions to the winner. And everyone who beats us wins a prize. Check out a new fireplace or garage doors at FiresideHomeSolutions.com. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage, my family beginning the conversations of downsizing. Great to have Jordan Flowers on my team. I'm in good hands. You could be too. 425-890-2957. Daniel's Broiler, the best steaks, incredible appetizers, and underrated desserts with the best views in the Northwest. No better place to celebrate special occasions than Daniel's Broiler. You got to love Daniel's Broiler world-class steakhouses. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning, taxes, and investments under one roof. EvergreenGK.com, more than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. And Zeke's Pizza, football season is pizza season. At Zeke's, specials every NFL game day at all Zeke's locations, Thursdays, Sundays, Mondays. Also, download the new Zeke's Pizza mobile app for home delivery. It's awesome. Homegrown in the Northwest. Episode 258 begins right now. Unfiltered. One of the biggest contributing factors of why this Mariners team could win 90 last year and get to the second round of the playoffs, I think you've got to factor in the Texas Rangers climb. Yeah, did the Texas Rangers climb hurt Houston? Yeah, you know how it hurt Houston? Houston still won the division, thanks to the Mariners. (laughs) Instead of winning it by nine games. Unfiltered. Why is this one so hard to digest? I'm not going to get over this very quickly. That they were the odd man out. There were, what, four teams yeah, over chairs. 10 days. Three chairs. Three ch- only, <laughs> w- only one was going to get eliminated. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't going to be like only one of the four were going to get in. Right. Three of the four <laughs> were going to get in. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 258 is now officially underway with Hot Shots Scott. And I got to say... That I don't have too many friends that randomly text me jokes from legendary stand-up comedians. Yeah. What prompted you to pick up the phone and text me while I'm in Florida an old one-liner from my old friend, <laughs> and I say my old friend Rodney Dangerfield? What? Where, where, where were you? What were you doing? What happened? It's actually a great question from you. You are a great interview. I don't care what everyone says. Um, <laughs> I was just, I always have YouTube on in the car, just something to listen to, an old whatever. So somebody put together a montage. Oh, I know what it was. was, It's a reaction video of young people who have never seen Rodney Dangerfield watching his like best jokes and seeing if they think it's funny. I'm just curious if young people laugh. And I had never heard that one before that I sent you. And by the way, you don't have any friends that text you. I don't know if I have any friends that think he's hilarious like you do. So, oh, really? so nobody likes well, Rodney Dangerfield? Back not to that they don't like him. I just know that you'll, you appreciate him as much as I do. We I saw Rodney Dangerfield in concert no less than five times. That's my unbelievable. Life. You never saw him, right? Yeah, I think I'm having a later appreciation for him. He was the guy in Caddyshack and he was funny. I of course, just, back, I to know, I, I, uh, back to school. Back to school was great. Yeah. Yes. He used to kill on Carson. 
you know, and I always heard he was hilarious. I just, I think I have a later appreciation for him. So I never even thought about seeing him. Come on. Is there anything better than when Kurt Vonnegut shows up at his door and back to school for the, for the book report that he had to write oh, yeah. on a Kurt <laughs> Vonnegut novel and Vonnegut shows up at his door? Come on. The triple yeah. Lindy. So That's Scott, best, yeah. Scott texts me the following. I'm telling you, I don't get a break for nothing. I joined Gamblers Anonymous. They gave me two to one. I don't make it. Why did that kill me? I, I feel like I've heard like 90% of his. Oh, that's I had old. never heard that one, and that one absolutely got me for some reason. I don't know why. And, of course, when you bring up Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> not only did I love Rodney Dangerfield, not only did I, I, I go to see him every single chance I could, but mm-hmm. it also brings up a story that I'm sure a lot of our listeners on the podcast have heard me tell maybe more than once on the radio show of my chance meeting. Like He was... For me, I don't know who your your comedian got. You you loved all comedians or uh, many comedians. I don't know if you had one. He was my guy. I mean, he was he was the guy that I liked the most. I liked him more than Richard Pryor. I liked him more than Eddie Murphy. I I just I loved Rodney Dangerfield. So when I got a chance to meet him for a half a second, it was yeah. like one of the great moments in my life. And I told this story. So it's it's nineteen, the summer of nineteen eighty six. Between my freshman and sophomore years at Syracuse, I took an internship in New York at NBA Entertainment, Hmm. which did all the films for NBA. And to earn a little bit of money, I also took a job on like 80th. No, it was on First Avenue, like between 78th and 79th at a little video rental store. They don't have those anymore. No such thing as a video (laughs) rental store. Did did yours have the little Western doors for the adult section, or was it not that kind of of an establishment? There was an adult section in the back. I don't remember the Western (laughs) doors. I don't remember the... We did have a... But it was a little... I I, I don't know how to explain it. It wasn't Blockbuster. It was just a little store on the streets of Manhattan... Big window in front, just what you would picture if you were walking down the streets. And I got a job. And when I worked, it was a small enough store that only one of us worked at each time. It wasn't like there was two or three workers. So on a Sunday, a random Sunday in 1986, First Avenue. And if there's ever a time where it's like a ghost town in New York, it would be a Sunday morning in summertime, people okay. are out in the islands, they're out in the Hamptons, wherever they are. Oh, gotcha. It's Sunday okay. early morning, they're sleeping, nobody's up, the streets are quiet, nobody's walking up and down the streets, and I happen to open and run the little store, the little video store, <laughs> God. on a random Sunday in 1986. My register, if you can picture, the little register in the front of the store where people had to pay as they rented their their movies, you had to be a member and that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That was up against the big window leading out to First Avenue. So right. people who were walking by would look into our window and I'd be standing right there. But nobody was walking by. Absolutely right. nobody was walking by. It was a ghost town. It's like 9:30 in the morning. I'm at the register. There's nobody in my store standing there and I look out the window and and you got to understand when somebody walks by, yes, there's glass between us, but they are within three feet of you. They're really close to you. They're, 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 they are the distance of the glass, the, the, <laughs> the, width, window pane. the, width, the, the width of the glass, right? Yeah. I look up and I do a double take. It's freaking Rodney Dangerfield walking down First <laughs> Avenue, looking at me through the glass. I'm looking at him. He's in pajamas. 
of course, walking yeah. down First Avenue at like 9.30 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, my God, my favorite comedian right there. He's right there. Yeah. Now, right next to our store was, and again, I don't know how many people can visualize this, that, you, that know New York and remember newsstands on the streets of sure, New York. Yeah. Little yep. newsstands where lots of the newspapers and magazines, they'd be actually out on the sidewalk where people walking by could put their hands on it. Little tiny newsstands right next to our video store. So not only does he walk by the, the great Ronnie Dangerfield, my, all, my all-time idol, he stops at the next door newsstand and like grabs the Sunday New York Post and he's now thumbing through the New York Post you know, moving back and forth as you would think Roddy Dangerfield does. <laughs> Is he does. really? Yes, That's hilarious. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and he's got his half glasses on and everything. I've got nobody in my store. He's now 10 feet from me. So I decide I'm going to grab a pen. I'm going to grab a napkin or a piece of paper. And I'm going to jump out of my store and ask him for his aunt. There's nobody in town. I mean, nobody's there. Yeah. I jump out of the, the store. I guess I was a little excited. And I yell, hey, Rodney. Yeah, you're, the, but you're you're a loud person. For those who have never been around you, <laughs> they you're freaking loud. So I can see you startling somebody with well, that voice this, of yours. This is 1986. I'm only like 19 years old. Remember, <laughs> still still probably loud, but okay. <laughs> I jump out. Of, I'm so excited. I jump out of my store, the door of my store, and I say, "Hey, Rodney!" And I startle him so much that the newspaper <laughs> goes flying up in the air. <laughs> It's like out of a movie. It's like out of a movie scene. Honestly, I swear to you, I am not embellishing in the least. And he turns to, and he turns to me and he says, hey, yeah, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Yeah, okay, yeah, how you doing? Just the way you would think. It's and just I him. Said, it's, just I him. Said, it's just him. And I <laughs> yeah. said to him, I say to him, Rodney, I'm so sorry for startling you. The paper went cr- flying. He was, it scared the shit out of him. I said, I'm yeah. so, I'm so sorry to startle you. Like everybody else, you're one of my all-time favorites. Is there any way I could get you to sign, get a signature, get a, get an autograph? And he says to me, oh, yeah, no problem. Okay, no problem. Okay, no problem. He comes walking over to me, and we kind of meet in the middle. I give him the pen and the napkin or the piece of paper, and he writes to T.O., leaves a blank, comma, Rodney Dangerfield signs it. He says, do me a favor. Put your name in there, okay? Just just write your name right in there where the blank is. And I said, That's okay. I said, oh, okay, thank you. This is the best. I love you. Thank you so much. And I yeah. swear, this is the best part. And people are going to think I'm embellishing. I am not embellishing the last part. He says, no problem. Okay, no problem. He puts the newspaper down. And he's now walking away from me down First Avenue, and I'm going back in the store. He's wa- I'm watching him from behind walk away. He's mumbling, no problem, okay, all right, no problem. He's like 20 feet, 30 feet, yeah, no problem, all right, okay. No, he's still saying it, no problem. Yeah, once right. you turn him on, you can't turn him off, he's right? Mum- <laughs> he's mumbling, no problem, that's, uh, that's okay, yeah. no problem, I'm all right, okay, all right. He's mumbling as I go, and I, I was like, this dude is the exact thing that you would expect yeah. him to be. He's not putting on a show. <laughs> Right. He's the real deal. Oh no, I've, I've asked you this before about him. I think you said he is legitimately funny, but I always thought maybe he was just a guy who read other people's jokes. But if you were to sit down and have dinner with him and a couple other comics, Don't would he stand out as Don't hilarious? Know. Do you Don't think? Know. Don't know. Yeah. Don't I know. always wondered. He's Don't pro- know. I mean, I would imagine he's a funny person, but you know, even when he was with Carson, th- there's no talking to Rodney Dangerfield, the person you're just getting one liner, one liner, one liner. You know what I mean? That's right. 
That's so right. I've yeah. always wondered like what he would be like if he were like have dinner with him. Boy, I don't know. The I I don't yeah. get no respect, man. Did he did he make a few dollars and I don't get no respect? I mean, did he his whole life? Oh my god. He built his whole life around one motto. I I get no respect. I don't get no respect. I tell you. Hilarious. I tell yeah. you. I mean, 1986 when you saw him, he's pretty freaking recognizable. No, no, no. Yeah. Huge. Go back Big and at I, that yeah, time. Yeah. Oh, huge. Yep. Huge at that time. Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife told me she wants to have sex in the back seat of the car. She wants me to drive. I'll tell you, it's the, it's <laughs> I know. Uh, it's just on and on. I, 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 I can just sit and listen to him for a half oh, hour. God. It's so funny. Oh, God. Yeah. Yep. That's Sunday in 1986. Anyway, That's... your dogs. Yes. Number five in the country after a 36 to 33 victory over the Duckies of Oregon in a oh, man. In an incredible game. You must have loved watching that. I mean, I I was on the edge of my seat from the beginning to the end, and I don't even have any any skin in the game. I mean, I I pull for them because my son goes there, but yeah. what a what a fabulous football game! A game that lived up to the billing. You talked about the Seahawks' first drive. How about that first drive for Washington? They go right down. I think it was the first drive, score, touchdown. I'm thinking, all right, here we go. Blowout time, buddy. We're going to kick the shit out of them. And boy, they did not do that, but they got the win. Oh, my God. Place going crazy. We're going to talk all about it with uh, Rick Neuheisel and Christian Capel. We'll talk a lot about the Huskies beating Oregon 36-33. Are you okay for a rematch? Would you like to see a rematch in the Pac-12 championship game in Las Vegas? Are you all right with that? No, I'm gonna pass if that's you don't okay. want. You don't Hope want somebody them? can knock them off. Oh come on! No, we want to see that. That's it's it's a good team. I would love to avoid them if at all possible. Can Wazoo help us? Can Wazoo beat them potentially? Please, somebody knock them off. Well, you no, I play, don't want to see them again. You don't want to play them again. That's a good team. I yeah, mean, yeah, I'm, the Huskies barely squeaked good. out a win at home, right? So no, I'm. I think I'm gonna pass. It was a beautiful game. It was a great game. Yeah. The dogs are fifth in both polls as we speak. And we've got Arizona State this week, followed by Stanford. And then after Arizona State and Stanford, which you would think, you never know, you would think the dogs will be okay against Arizona State and Stanford. You get at USC, Utah at home, at Oregon State, and that's the game I fear most, and Washington State at home. That's your final four Pac-12 games ever for all that, for all intents and purposes. USC... Utah, Oregon State, November the 18th, I'm worried about, and Washington State University. That's what stands in the way of you and the Pac-12 title game and then ultimately, hopefully, the college football playoff. It's a bit of a gauntlet, but seeing what USC did against Notre Dame, feeling a little better. <laughs> seeing what, what the Wazoo score, 44-6, to I'm feeling a little better about the last, even though they could lose all of them. I mean, those are all still pretty good teams, but yeah. I'm feeling a little better than maybe a couple weeks ago when it looked like the Pac-12 was just unstoppable. And how's Dan Lanning feeling these days? I don't know if you saw my tweet no. that I sent out no. about the handshake at the end. No. What happened? So if you look at the handshake, Lanning comes out and they shake hands. DeBoer leans in like to say something as coaches do, right? And Lanning instantly turns his head and just walks away. So I just said, did that seem a little dismissive? Because it kind of did. And it was about 50-50 on the response. By the way, I say the funniest shit on Twitter. It gets like two likes. I say something about the Huskies and 300 likes, 16 retweets. Like, what the hell? First of all, I've got a couple of responses. (laughs) Yeah. Are you sure you say the funniest shit on Twitter? I mean, who's... I'm hilarious. Who's deciding that it's funny shit? I am hilarious. I'm so proud of some of my tweets. Yeah, crickets. 
This one, and then this one blows up. Like well, it's you know about about fifty fifty. I'd say on. The I did responses. not see the handshake, and I did not see your tweet. So I'll try to give you a response without having seen either of them, which is probably not very fair. But my initial reaction to hearing you explain what happened is that the losing coach in a game like that gets a pass. Because? Because that was an unbelievably heart-wrenching... I mean, if it's the, if it's the winning coach who is dismissive of the other guy, okay, I, I understand the criticism of that guy. Dan Lanning, and I don't know Dan Lanning. I don't like Oregon. I don't like Dan. I have no affinity yeah. towards that guy in the least. But my immediate reaction hearing you say that is, I felt badly for Oregon. I, be- I felt badly that the guy missed the field goal at the end. It felt like a game that should have been an overtime game. Dan Lanning had just made some incredibly difficult decisions. They all went wrong. He lost the game by three. He probably wasn't expecting DeBoer, DeBoer to say anything. He had to have felt heartbroken going across that field in the seconds after a game to shake the guy's hand that his team had just lost that game. Whether it's Dan Lanning or Scott Soden or Mitch, whoever's in that role as the loser on the losing yeah. end of that game, I give him a pass. I give him a pass. Okay, so how do you? So a lot of people said, well, look, the fans are rushing the field. He just lost the game. He wants to get the hell out of there. True. And so True. that was half of them. But that's not what I'm that. saying. I'm not even saying right. that. I'm, I'm, not I'm, I'm asking you, yeah, does yeah. that factor in sure. at all for you? Sure, that doubles it then. Okay. That doubles it then. Okay. And to be fair, he did shake DeBoer's hand, looked him in the eye, okay. shook his hand, Okay. but yeah. turned his head as DeBoer was leaning in and just got kind of well, got out of dodge. Well, so, you he know. had just made three Ooh. incredibly difficult decisions that all backfired Ooh. against him. He, he had just passed on three points at the end of the half which could have brought his team within one, and those three at the end of the game would have been invaluable. He had just gone for it on third down inside the eight and not taken three in the third quarter, and then he had just decided not to punt and go for it on fourth and three, only to give it back to the Huskies and watch the Huskies go down and win the game. So he's probably kicking himself. <laughs> he's, he's probably heartbroken for his kids. Look at me defending Dan Lanning. Again, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That was yeah. a... That was a tough game to be on the losing side of. And I would just say, hey, let's take a step back and okay. be a little bit compassionate for the losing side before we jump all over him for snubbing DeBoer. Did those did those fourth down calls, to me, it's just kind of reeked of arrogance. Is that a word you would use no. at all? No, I, I, I wouldn't. And I've had this conversation with both New Heisel and Capel that you'll hear on this show. My opinion is that Oregon went into the game with the strategy of, hey, we can't settle for field goals when we get inside the 10-yard line. We are going up against a great offensive team that no matter how good my defense is, they're going to score. We're going up against the, the leading Heisman Trophy candidate. We're going up against the number one quarterback and a high-flying offense in Washington on their home field. And if we get inside the 10 or 5-yard line, and we settle for three points in those situations, we can't win. That's what it reeked to me. Not arrogance, that we have to score seven to stay with them. And then as it, as it relates to the fourth down call, the decision to pass on the punt. This is what I said to New Heisel and Capel. I'll say it to you. If I were in that situation, I would have punted and made 
you know, it's a four-point game. You're up four. Make Washington. Penix is not feeling particularly well at that point. He's a little banged up. He's having trouble breathing. Make him go 80 or 90 for a touchdown to beat you. I would have punted, okay? Part of the reason I would have punted, I'm just going to say it, is I would not have had the balls to go for the win in that situation like Dan Lanning. I can take a step back and say I admire the guy for going for it because what is he doing right there? It's fourth and three. He leads by four. He's got Washington's offense on the sideline. He needs one more first down and the game is over. They can't stop the clock, right? Yep. He has just watched his offense put together 515 yards of offense against Washington. They're averaging seven, eight, nine yards every play, running or passing. And we need three yards right now. If I can get three yards right now, Washington's offense and that Heisman Trophy contender never gets back on the field. That's what he's saying. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to try to win it right here with my guys. I'm not going to let Penix back. I'm not going to punt it to him because I'm not going to let Penix back on the field. We're going to win this fucking thing right now on their home field by getting a first down and running out the clock. I wouldn't have done it because I don't think I would have had the balls to do it. Yeah. But in a weird way, I admire the guy <laughs> for saying we're not letting Penix touch the ball again or trying to. Yeah. Because maybe deep down, I mean, like you said, deep down, they know that offense is so explosive. It's probably they're, going to have trouble stop. They're probably going to go score. So, so you got to give credit to the Husky offense then for kind of putting the fear into the coaching staff of like, we got to keep them off this field. If they get the ball back, you got this Heisman kid who's probably going to take them down. Yeah. I'll just take the opposite side of you. I want to see it again. This was like Balboa and Creed in the first matchup where they went, they, they killed each other for 15 rounds. And then of the fight, Creed says to Balboa, there ain't going to be no, no rematch. And he's like, I don't want no rematch. <laughs> that's okay, right. Right. Did they, I don't, didn't they hit each other at the same time? And then they're both laying there. Or was oh, that the second that's one? That's the second fight. Come on. Get oh, your, get I, your I, fight. I'm straight. trying I want this game again in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 title. I want to see it again. But there's a long way to go. USC is going to have a say in that. Utah is going to have a say in that. Oregon State's really good. They're going to have a say in it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Three guests and then the other stuff segment. It's been a while since we caught up with Jordan Flowers, my main man of the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. How's everything going in Jordan's world? Hey, Mitch, it's going fantastic. I'm uh, chasing old Mitchie in the Manager of the Year award for Little League Baseball. How many teams you got over there? You know, I was the manager of two, both my 10 and 8-year-old. Uh-huh. And I got to say... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be giving you a run for your money, Combined man. Combined record? Oh, gosh. We only lost probably six games. Oh, that's six more season. than I lose. I don't lose. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. All right, let's talk about the market, the buying and selling market. It's not easy these days, but it's still doable, especially for home buyers. Give us your analysis, Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, inventory is still a little tight, but better than it was. But we are winning a lot of offers and using that 2-1 buy-down program we've talked about. Tell me about that. 
that program? Yes. So basically what we do is we are negotiating with the sellers, getting a price that they want, getting a credit towards uh, closing costs for our buyers. And they use that credit to then temporarily buy down the interest rate for the first two years of the home. So we get through this kind of elevated interest rate period with a 2% lower rate than what market is at. Are people still buying second homes and investment pieces? And what do you have to offer those types of clients? Yeah, people are buying in Arizona, California, Eastern Washington, kind of all over. We're helping people buy second homes and investment properties. We've got a couple great options for the investment property buyer, uh, especially uh, using that debt service underwriting ratio that we've talked about in the past where they don't even need to provide tax returns. Really, what we look for is qualifying our buyers off of the cash flow of the property. So it's a great program right now for people looking to pick up investment properties at good prices, get an income producing property. Is there a way to have a best guess of what the next six months or a year look like? Does Jordan Flowers have a crystal ball? <laughs> I thought I had a crystal ball, but you know. <laughs> Is it Ernie Zampezi's story? I'm not going to say when. I'm just going to know it's coming, right? I'm like We're going to get through this and they're coming back down. I think, I think we should expect for the rest of this year rates to maintain in the 6% range. Maybe we see them by the end of the year get back down in the fives. But I will say when they do come back into the low sixes to mid fives, it will again, open up floodgates for buyers and for sellers bringing properties on. So there is pent up demand. It's sitting there and it's just, we're, we're waiting. Well, I've always loved Jordan Flowers and his team at uh, both companies, not cross country mortgage, the Woodenville office, because they're willing to take your phone call and be creative. Think outside the box and to reach you on a phone that doesn't have a full voicemail, Jordan Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I just got a new phone. Okay. My kids like to tease me that I'm the no upgrader. Okay. I don't upgrade my phone. Okay. I've had the same one for six years. All right. And I've now upgraded and I'm setting up the voicemails. Everything's going to be Phone number? Here. Same phone number? Give us the number, please. 425-890-2957 is the best one to reach me on. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage and JFlow, Jordan Flowers. Without guys like him and companies like theirs, where would Mitch Unfiltered be? Cross country mortgage unfiltered Smith in the pocket hangs in there throws it picked up lunging interception Taylor Britt motion man Metcalf Smith hit as he throws B.J. Hill and it's over I love the way we play today. And uh, so, I mean, I mean, I know we got our penalties and we had some stuff and there's always stuff to get better, but that's a freaking competitive group, man. They fought their ass off today and on both sides of the football. The dictionary definition of frustrating, the 17-13 Seahawks loss in Cincinnati, dropping them to three and two. It's the Seahawks Note Table presented by Taco Time Northwest. Still Tuesdays in October. 61 cent crisp tacos to celebrate Taco Time Northwest's 61st anniversary. Brian Nemhauser, Hawk Blogger, Brady Henderson, ESPN.com. I always ask Brady after losses to you and Joe and now Brian, why? Why do the Seahawks lose? Typically, we get a diverse set of answers. Something tells me. 
the answers are going to be all quite similar when we go around the horn and try to explain the loss to the Cincinnati Bengals. They couldn't finish drives. Yeah, and this was a weird game, as you mentioned, for a lot of reasons. And I mean, they outgained the Bengals 381 uh, to 214. You almost never see a, a defense hold a, an, an offense, especially a good offense, uh, to 214 yards. So a lot of the stats would indicate that you know they should have won this game and that one uh, more than any other. But they went 5 of 12 on third down, which is actually improvement for them. Uh, 0 for 2 on fourth down, 1 of 5 in the red zone, and it was. Uh, you know they moved the ball plenty well, which is one reason why I think this loss is, you know, more frustrating uh, than discouraging. You know, it'd be one thing if they were just stuck in the mud all day and couldn't get anything going. They they you know played well in spurts on offense. They just couldn't finish to save their lives, and so uh, that's why they lost this game. In addition to, in part of not finishing was, um, you know, two turnovers, two interceptions yeah. by Geno Smith. I don't know that he was at fault for the second one. It looked like DK Metcalf totally gave up on the route, but that first one in the red zone was just a mistake that you don't see Geno Smith make. Brian, you're in a cafe tomorrow in Seattle, Washington, or Bellevue, Washington, or somewhere. And somebody comes up to you and says, Brian, I didn't get a chance to see the game yesterday. Why did the Seahawks, what happened? What, what, 17-13, what happened? How did the Seahawks lose to the Bengals holding to 17 points? What's your answer? I think it's pretty simple, you know, and Brady touched on some of it. You can't go three times inside the 10-yard line and come away with three points. Can't do that as one thing. And then the other is you can't do that and lose the turnover battle. You do both of those things and you're on the road against any team that isn't just absolutely atrocious themselves. You're going to lose like 99 times out of 100. And I think that's what happened in this game. I think the thing that's probably different for me than maybe most is what the takeaways are from this game. I, I think a lot of people are really upset about this game. I walk away with a much different feeling. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. What if I told you that Joe Burrow has held 185 yards passing? That is the lowest total he has ever had in his career at home. It's never happened before. The Seahawks did that to him all week. The story has been Joe Burrow's healthy. He's over the hump. He's running sprints. He's back. Jamar Chase just had 15 catches for, you know, 200 yards, three touchdowns. Mitch, you said it was the best game by receiver we're going to see all season. They get T. Higgins back. They have Joe Mixon. They had everything. And then the offense did nothing for the Seahawks defense for pretty much three quarters. The defense came out time after time after time and made big plays. And this is the first time we've seen that secondary at full strength. This was the best game I think the Seahawks defense has played in years. Well, then you just and I think the yeah. significance of that. Yeah. Overshadows far outweighs yeah, the fact that Jake Curhan cannot play right tackle for this. Team. <laughs> so what's interesting is you just answered my next question. I was going to ask you whether this in some ways was a better defensive performance than 11 sacks two Monday nights ago. Against You just answered because you said it's the best defensive performance in years and years and years. I think, Brady, there's a few things that really emphasize the problem the Seahawks were having offensively. Number one is look at that first drive. I, I said to Hotshot Scott in our first segment, it was Raquel Welch. It was ageless beauty. It was 11, 11 plays, 75 yards. They ran it at will. They threw it at will. They got inside the five. They punched it in easy for a touchdown. They didn't settle for – I mean, it was poetry, that first drive. And I think the other thing I said was never in football history has an opening drive represented less 
what was about <laughs> to come for the next two hours and 45 minutes. So people can't. How do you get your arms around how good they looked in that drive and then they can't move the well, they can move the ball and can't finish. Yeah, and, and you could say the same thing about the Bengals too. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. You know, first two touchdown drives. That was not indicative of what happened the rest of the game either. So it is really hard uh, to figure out. I mean, it's it's just one of those inexplicable performances because I mean they didn't on that first drive. You know, they were so good on first and second down, they only faced one third down on that drive. And, and Jackson Smith and Jigba uh, converted it with a nice catch over the middle. And so um, I, I I don't have a great answer for you. I know that I'm I'm on here be, to give you answers and I really don't have a good one as to why they couldn't finish. Okay. I mean, it was just it okay. was just a little bit of everything. Well, and, I, and again, I think that's why you look at this game as being more disappointing than, you know, discouraging and, and a sign that. You know they're really in trouble. It's you know they they moved the ball so well in this game. There was so much, uh, I think, positive to take away from what they did. You know, mostly on defense, but uh, even some on offense. And um, you know, it's also one of those games that it, it's a AFC game. It doesn't hurt you as bad in the standings. And so yeah, you know, we've gone on here and, and talked about truly discouraging performances from the Seahawks that really make you wonder how good of a team they are. And I don't think this was really one of Look, them. Look, when the season, I think we talked about it in our last installment for the Patriots. When the schedule came out, nobody expected them to win this game. Nobody expected them to win this game. And if you're looking at the Seahawks as kind of a 10-win team, you're not really looking at them as an NFC West crown winner, despite what the 49ers did on Sunday. This loss, I think Brian is so level-headed. I think where Brian Nemhauser helps me on the note table more is what Brian is representing here is how I will feel on Tuesday, how I will feel on Thursday. I'm just not level-headed enough to feel it in the hours after a game. I think once the dust settles on this, no, I'm joking. I'm half joking. I'm half serious. You know, as a Seahawks fan, Brian, you can understand 17, 13, you had every chance of the, the defense gave you, 10 chances to win the game, literally 10 chances, and you couldn't take advantage of it. So it's frustrating because the game was right there to be had. But you're right. You are so right. Really, the storyline of this game is how exquisite, after an unbelievable performance two weeks ago, a back-to-back performance by this defense, incredibly sound and and special it was a special defensive performance well and mitch you know you said it last time we were talking you talked about horse you said prove it prove it and that's what they just did they proved like this was this was significantly steeper competition and they did it they did it they 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 so far exceeded my like wildest expectations of what they could do yes it was unreal and so i think that's really important and look this has so much to do with expectations in general. I did not enter this season thinking the Seahawks were legitimate contenders for the Super Bowl. I didn't think they were that close to being legitimate contenders for the Super Bowl. I believe that what's happening is you've had two really strong drafts, and now you're starting to see the outline of what can be a team that's actually building towards something that's meaningful. And look, Jake Curhan playing right tackle is not part of the solution there. We know that already, and Abe Lucas is going to be a critical part of that. 
I think that we also, we do believe that, that Jackson Smith and Jigba does have to be part of that solution. And he had his best game today, which by the way, I think may have contributed to some of the challenges. This is the, they got Charles Cross back. This is the first time that I bet they played. We'll see the numbers. I don't know this, but I bet those we'll see that they played fewer two tight end formations and packages that has been their bread and butter where they've succeeded. The Seahawks and Shane Waldron have not yet proven that they can kill people with three receiver sets. I think they did that more today, and I think it didn't work out so well. So Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks insider. Let's talk about the world of social media, which you love so very much. Love it. Geno Smith is just getting thrown under the bus. And I'll go back to what I said in our first segment with Hotshot. Geno Smith may have played a terrible game. I don't know. Everybody else seems to know. Everybody who was watching the same TV broadcast that I was watching, I was here in Miami, everybody else in the Northwest was watching the same TV broadcast. I don't see, I don't, I don't have enough information in a game like this to be able to know for sure that Geno was crap or were guys not getting open. I need somebody who was in Cincinnati. I need somebody on this panel who was sitting in the press box in Cincinnati who could see the whole field Tell me, what was Geno seeing? Maybe he was just seeing, maybe there's no separation. Maybe DK Metcalf is hurt and not getting separation. Maybe Tyler Lockett is not getting separation. Maybe the offensive scheme of Shane Waldron is not creating passing lanes. Do you have any sense of what what was Geno Smith seeing? out there yeah this was not a case of him just you know not find not seeing open receivers down the field there there was one play in the game i can't remember exactly when it was but he had jackson smith and jig but running deep over the middle of the field sort of towards the corner of the end zone and he it looked like he had him open um and he pulled the ball down and i watched the replay of it it looked like he you know thought long and hard about it and at the last second kind of pulled the ball down and you know i wonder if uh if part of the thinking there was you know, they were moving the ball so well that you don't really need to take a chance uh, on that. And, and you know, it, it, maybe the safety could have closed the gap and made a play on the ball. Who knows? But, um, you know, at the time they were moving the ball well and he probably thought that, you know, there's there's no need to force it. Like he sort of forced it uh, on the throw to Smith and Jigba earlier in the game that um, resulted in the interception. And so I, I didn't see a ton of plays where he was just sort of looked lost out there. I think a lot of that was... You just couldn't find an open receiver. Now, it, it's one thing to do that, you know, on a second down play and take a sack. You just can't take sacks in some of the situations that he took sacks, um, you know, including that fourth and um, fourth and six on their second to last possession. You've got to get the ball out there. Um, I know he would have liked to get the ball out earlier on the final play where he was trying to hit Kobe, uh, Colby Parkinson uh, on an out route there, and, and the rush just got to him. So he was sacked four times. I think he took... 13 quarterback hits. Uh, Bengals pressured him 20 times, which according to our great stats department at ESPN was the the most by the Bengals, thank you, uh, since midway through the 2021 season. But, you know, a lot of that pressure, I don't know if that was necessarily on the offensive line. Certainly some of it was, and as Brian said, Jake Curran had a long day. Uh, But some of that was there was just nothing going on, nothing nothing getting open down the field, and uh, he couldn't find anybody to throw to. I I think this is wild, guys. I really do, And, and I think that it comes down to f- just frustration of the the outcome. I think really what it comes down to, Geno Smith had, I would say, three plays that were you know like inexcusable plays for a QB. His interception to Jackson Smith and Jigba in the red zone, 
that was that was a forced throw should have never been thrown. And then the other two that are totally inexcusable to me is you can't go, you can't take a fourth down sack in the red zone at the end of the game. And you did it twice. Right. Like I, if I'm remembering correctly, but he took sacks in the red zone without even giving his receivers or anyone a chance to make a play. You, there's just zero chance to win. And so those no matter what the other scenarios are or, or factors, that's inexcusable. But this guy made six to eight. I think we're going to find out six to eight big time throws, tough throws in tight windows. And what a what a terrible performance looks like is you don't put up 323 yards. You don't hit Tyler Lockett for 30 yards to put yourself in a position in the red zone to win. You don't hit DK Metcalf up the sideline. You don't that, that even the pass that DK Metcalf ended up having broken up on the sideline. Geno Smith was walking the ball out to some of these receivers in un- when Geno Smith, when um, DK Metcalf had that terrible penalty, which we should talk about as well. And his immaturity continues to show up and it's second and 21 and Geno comes back and hits a 30 yarder to Tyler, I believe to get a first, like there were some big, big, big time plays. This was not an awful performance by Geno Smith. It was a losing performance by Geno Smith and he's got to own that. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the nature of, of where we're at with social media. Unfortunately, is that nowadays you're either trash or you're the goat. You're either excellent or you're terrible and and people lose sight of the fact that there is an in-between there a lot of times and this was one of those games that was in between he was pretty good in some spots you know you, like Brian said you don't put up over 300 passing yards uh, and and play terrible so he had to do a lot of good things that throw to the DK Metcalf that I don't know if Metcalf dropped it or if it got batted out I mean that was a deep ball put on the money from you know 30 plus yards out uh, and had some other nice plays there but I agree some of those mistakes you just can't make I think the red zone one was probably the worst one like Brian said you can't take sacks on fourth down you got to give yourself a chance uh, I mean it there's no harm at that point and just throwing the ball up and seeing what happens and so you can't do that but he he was you know he, he did some good in this game I, I would say it was far from terrible and penalties in the red zone penalties all over the place all day you don't go on the road and beat a quality opponent with a bunch a bunch of penalties especially the ones in the red zone where you know you're at how about the one right before the interception they're at the two yard line and they get an illegal 15 yard block on uh, Smith and Jigba, I think it was. No, it was, it was I think Kenneth it was Walker. Ken Walker. Okay, that was kind of a legitimate weird. call. That was a weird call. Well, I don't know whether it was weird or not, whether it was true or not, whether it was valid or not. Here's what I know: they were at the two yard line, and they went back, or they were at the five yard line. They're back at the twenty, and then he's got to force something because it's second goal from like the twenty three yard line or what, whatever it was, and he throws an interception. I mean. There were so many penalties, and I'll, and I'll I'll tee you up, Brian, because you wanted to talk about it. DK Metcalf again gets a 15-yarder. You know, let me see if I can articulate what I'm thinking. This has been happening since he came into the league. There's a subtle difference between now and the ones a few years ago. The ones a few years ago were happening in the midst of him making big play after big play after big play and having big games. Yeah, he'd be quiet in certain games, but he was he was a monster. And I don't want to sit here and say he's regressed. I don't want to say he doesn't have it anymore. I don't want to say that he's lost a step in his speed. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's playing with bad ri- I don't know what it is. These 15-yard penalties are happening in games where he's a non-factor for the most part. Is he not getting open as much? Are they not looking his way as, as much? Has, is he not the receiver 
NFL wide that he was two years ago? Do you sense? I sense that. I sense that he has, for whatever reason, he's like an ordinary wide receiver anymore. I don't know if I. I know why you're you're sensing that. I don't have that same sense. I, I think that. I think he is legitimately playing with probably broken a broken okay. rib or All something right. along right. those well, that's lines. The from, that's the answer. From the Detroit game, um, when he got hit at the at the goal line, I mean they've they've insinuated that he's been got an, a, a rib injury, and T Higgins missed a game with this. He's coming back, and everyone's talking about that. I think DK's muscling through it, and I think he went out in this game with a hip injury, which maybe is the same, or maybe it was different. And he came back and played through. So I give him credit for that. At the same time, there's no way to describe what he's doing after the whistle other than a selfish me play. Those are about him and his ego. They are not about the team. They are not about helping his team win. And they're, they're a penalty that you make when you're in your rookie season. He's not anywhere close to He's the highest paid player on this team. He needs to actually act as a leader and not be hurting his team. If nothing else, don't hurt your team. And he's doing it almost every week. It's just I, I, as a fan, which I get to be on this show, I, I'm, I'm sick of it. And I, I'm ready for him to be adding more than he is, is removing. And, and he, he just is not hitting that striking that balance right now the haywire that is the post-game scene when we're going back and forth between the locker room and the interview room uh, to, to do the press conferences. I, I didn't get a chance to talk to DK, but another reporter did, and I'll sort of paraphrase uh, what Metcalf told the other reporter, which was that he did not, he said he didn't hear, he was sort of away from the play, right? And the officials uh, who were at that part of the field they don't blow the play dead like the officials closer to the play did. And so he said that he didn't hear doesn't the matter. whistle from Brady. It doesn't matter because I, oh, I, no, if, I'm not, I'm not defending the, him. I'm the, just giving you okay, what he said he, and, what and I'll say my piece about it. Here's what Brian, here's what's Brian Cause it means he's not learning his lesson. Yeah. But, but here's what Brian's thinking. Brian's thinking, even if the play was still going on that, uh, yeah, even, you don't need to do that. I mean, yeah. It's so far away from the play. It's so unnecessary. I mean, they used to call it unnecessary roughness. Maybe they still call it unnecessary. I mean, that's that's the, what he got flagged for. Okay, unnecessary so roughness. Unnecessary roughness. The play could have still been ten seconds longer. It could have been right in the middle of the play. He doesn't have to make a play like he's nowhere near the action when he makes that play. Yeah, and I think he's got to realize that I don't even know if any other player would get away with that, but he's he's got a reputation now, and so if he does anything close to that, it's going to get flagged. And so whether Pete Carroll believes the explanation that DK gave post-game or not, I mean, Carroll has already had you know several heart-to-heart heart, heart, heart talks with him about this. There was one earlier in the season, and it just I remember thinking at the time, like, what what could he say or do Nothing. that he hasn't said or done already? I see him as it's fake tough. It, it is like choosing a moment to get a hit in when someone's not looking. If you want to if you want to actually show up as a tough player, do what Jake Bobo did today. Get hit and break tackles and come back in the game. Play through injury the way DK's doing like but. Don't do it after the whistle trying to take a cheap shot at a guy. That's not tough. Okay. That's just that's just Bush League and it hurts your team. So it's not the reason the team lost today, but you could argue if he makes if he does if he runs his route on the second interception, doesn't give up on the play, and maybe breaks up the interception, that's three points. The Seahawks win this game. They win this game with a field goal late instead of losing. And that's the kind of crap I just it's not even the penalties all the time. It's like the effort and the professionalism. 
And it shouldn't be allowed on this team. Bobby Wagner, others on this team should not tolerate that from DK Metcalf. Northwest, 61 years serving the Northwest. 61 cent tacos on Tuesdays during the month of October. Crisp tacos, beef, chicken, whatever you'd like. They uh, love to applaud people doing some work. It's time to uh, recognize. It's time to recognize somebody who was doing some work with the boys here on the Seahawks note table. Brady, you start. You get the pick of the litter. What do you want? Yeah, I'm going to go a little bit off the board here, and uh, I know you guys want to pick somebody from the defense, so I will let you do that. And I will go Jake Bobo here. He had two catches for 43 yards. That's not exactly uh, you know lighting up the stat sheet, but they were big catches, and they were nice catches. One of them converted a third down. The other uh, was the catch where he, he reaches high in the air, makes a great leaping, twisting catch, and then takes the wicked shot uh, coming down uh, that drew a penalty that you got him even Bobo. closer you love to the goal line. So. You love yourself, More Bobo. Bobo. More Bobo. So Bobo gets your Taco Time crisp taco for 61 cents. And uh, he is your Seahawk doing some work, right? Yes, Jake Bobo was doing some work. Mitch, I'm also feeling generous, so I'm going to leave the obvious answer for you. We'll see if, if you think it's also obvious. Um, I am going to go with one guy who managed to finish a complete game and did it well. Uh, Jamal Adams, after having... One of the most arduous recoveries and rehabs that you have in sports, uh, torn quad tendon. Most a lot of players, that's a career ending injury. This guy was in a cast for six months or I don't know what it was. It was crazy. He was 20. He weeks. had to do a lot of work just to get to today. And he played a good game as part of a great game for the team. Jamal Adams, uh, four tackles, one tackle for loss. QB hit. I say he was doing some work. And for me, I'll uh, go ahead and do something that I rarely do in about 25 years, 30 years here in Seattle. There's nothing that I like doing better than criticizing coordinators. I love to criticize coordinators. Gosh, no one is a better play caller than Mitch Levy. No one criticizes offensive coordinators like I do. Nobody fires or tries to fire defensive coordinators like I do. So I guess... When you deserve a little kudos, you deserve a little kudos. And Clint Hurts defense for the second straight game delivered a masterful performance. As Brian uh, alluded to, I think it was 214 yards to Joe Burrow and Joe Mixon and Chase and all these receivers. I got to give uh, the defensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks, the whole unit, the defensive coordinator, my taco time Northwest, doing some work, 61 cent crisp taco. Uh, Brady, before we get to the Arizona game, do we need to know anything about injuries coming out of the Bengals game? Didn't know of any injuries coming out of this game. I did see Jake Curran look like he was limping pretty hard after the game. Uh, didn't hear anything about that from Pete Carroll. Now, Carroll did say last week that uh, it looked like Abe Lucas was going to get back to practice uh, this coming week. So does that mean he plays You know, after missing four games and only practicing one week? That'd probably be too much to ask. They usually like those guys to get a couple weeks of practice when they're coming off uh, a long layover before they play again. So uh, if I don't think it's going to be this week against Arizona, but it looks like they got a good chance to get Lucas back uh, for the Browns game the following week against Miles Garrett uh, and the Browns. And based on what we saw in this game That's it. Uh, at Cincinnati, yeah. they're definitely going to need him. Yeah. And maybe you feel like, well, the Cardinals are becoming the Cardinals and you might be able to, you, you never want to do this in the NFL. The 49ers found that out on Sunday against Cleveland. 
but uh, maybe you feel like we can get through the Cardinals game and then uh, get healthy against that Browns defense. Brian Nemauser all week, the Hawk blogger. Brian is a part of the Seahawks note table. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mitch. And my guy, Brady Henderson. Brady of ESPN.com, Seahawks insider in Cincinnati. Safe travels home, Brady. All right, thanks, Mitch. Here we are again with Fireside Home Solutions owner John Waterstrat. How are you, John? Doing great, Mitch. Thank you very much for having me on again. It's nice to have you back. Football season in full swing. That means a few things, like it's time to evaluate your old fireplaces, chilly temperatures around the corner. Question, how do I know if I need a new one? Is it appearance, functionality, or both, John? It's probably a little bit of both. We always talk to people about, hey, how long have you had this fireplace? You know, what's your usage on that? Just taking a look at it. If it just doesn't look like it's doing what you want it to do, call us up. We can have one of our service technicians come out and do mm-hmm. a quick evaluation, give you some recommendations. And if that fireplace is and it just needs to be refreshed, we'll do that for you too. If it needs to be replaced, they'll hook you in with one of our sales staff and we'll get that taken care of for you. Is it a little more complicated if I want to incorporate a fireplace into an area of my home that's never had one? To be honest, yes, I think it's a little harder, but it's not a full remodel. You have to kind of decide on what you want. If you don't have a fireplace and you want to do something freestanding, have that done in a day. If you want something framed up, be there and kind of be part of your room. We can help you with that. We have contractors that can help you with that. We can look at the fireplaces and see what you would want. And then we can hook you in with the contractors that do the tile and other things that are available. So I know you want us to come out to one of your showrooms. I'd like to know about the reaction to that newly remodeled Bellevue location, John. Yeah, it's been great. It's been uh, inspiring for all of us. Uh, I love people to walk in and see that first fireplace we have in there. It's a fireplace that has glass on all four sides. It's almost like a floating fireplace. Wow. You'd be wowed by it. But uh, yeah, just come on in and be inspired and you yeah. could be a kid in a candy store. <laughs> John Waterstrat, Fireside Home Solutions, just a terrific partner of Mitch Unfiltered and the presenting partner of our fourth annual Beat the Boys competition this football season. Where would we be without John and FiresideHomeSolutions.com? Hey, look who it is. Katie Versio, the Director of Financial Planning, Evergreen Golf Call. Hi, Katie. The market's up. How's everything at Evergreen? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everything here is going well. How are you doing? Everybody is good here. I'm ready for the new trivia quiz. The theme today is what? Today we're doing a economic and market update. I'm okay. revisiting some of the questions we discussed at this time last year and just seeing how things have changed. Questions that I undoubtedly missed at this time last year. I'll try to get some answers right and I'm ready for question number one from Evergreen Golf Call. So the Federal Reserve started increasing interest rates in March of 2022 in an effort to cool inflation and slow down the economy without tipping us into a recession. How many times has the Fed raised rates since March of 2022? Is it seven times, nine times, or 11? It's a lot. I'm throwing seven out. It's either nine or 11. 11 sounds extremely high. I'm going to go nine. So it actually is 11 times. 
So the Fed has the fastest tightening cycle on record. Where interest rates have increased significantly, now we see the two-year Treasury around 4.8%. So while we don't know what will happen moving forward, if they're going to raise again, if they'll pause or if they'll cut, we think now is a good time to lock in yields on fixed income. And of course, Mitch is in a familiar spot. Oh, for one, I'm ready for question number two. Okay, so in June of 2022, the inflation rate was 9.1%, the highest rate in four decades. What's the current inflation rate as of June 2023? Is it 3%, 4%, or 5%? Well, it's way down, but I don't think it's down to three, so I'll go 4% B again. It's actually 3%. So inflation has come down significantly over the last 12 months. In addition, unemployment has stayed low under 4%. Right now it's under 3.6%. What they've been doing appears to have had some effect on these markers. And there I am at 0 for 2. I'm probably staring at another 0% in the face. I'm ready for question number three. Have a little mercy on me, would you please, Katie? (laughs) All right, I'm giving you an easy one this time. So it's a true or false. Both stocks and bonds are up in 2023. Absolutely true. I'm going to get one right, Katie. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. Stocks are up 19% and bonds are up a little over 2%. So this is following the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio that I know we've talked about in the past. So it's been a strong start in the first half of the year. All the ups and downs over the last many years make this a great time to learn more about my partner, Evergreen Golf Call, a one-stop shop for all of your investment needs. Learn about them at evergreengk.com. Josh Cardi from 31 yards out, trying to snap the four-game losing streak. With a strong second half for the win, the Cardinals storm into Boulder and run back to the farm in Palo Alto with the dub. They're going to try to hammer SC right here. Straight up the gut, Estimay walks in for the Notre Dame touchdown. It was the game of the weekend nationally and the most highly anticipated college football game in Seattle for a long time. Taco Time Northwest celebrating its 61st birthday. Presents Rick Neuheisel, 61 cent crisp tacos every Tuesday at every location in October. Richard Gerald Neuheisel Jr. Don't we love a game that lives up to the hype? 36 to 33. Washington was a three point favorite. They won by three. The over under was 68. The total was 69. Bino Cook used to say to me, Rick, when I said, (laughs) when I said to him, how did they get, how do they get it right in Vegas so often? And he used to say, that's why they send their kids to Ivy League schools and live in big houses. (laughs) Well, they were right on this one. Uh, Everybody was right in terms of uh, what the game was built up to be. It lived up to it. Uh, The quarterbacks were were sterling. The scene was off the charts from the moment game day came on the television in the darkness of Seattle. And yet they were there in number. I had spent the entire week, Mitch, telling everybody that I know the Husky crowd will be in mass. The Husky crowd Uh will be a factor. 
You give the Seahawks that 12th man when the Huskies, <laughs> when the Huskies get juiced up, call it 12 or 13. I'm just telling you when the film shakes, it's on. And I promise you the film is shaking yeah. this particular week yeah. as Kalen DeBoer and his and his staff uh, watch this particular ball game. So, no question they're watching a shaking film. So there's a million things to talk about in this game, obviously, from coaches' decisions to performances. But as an overall thought, would any of us be disappointed to see a rematch in the Pac-12 championship game outside of USC fans, Utah fans, UCLA fans, or... Should we all be clamoring to see these two like Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa on the field one more time? We have seen too many warts on these other teams. Uh, UCLA just took their second loss. USC looked horrible against uh, Notre Dame. Just a dismantling by a, a two-loss Irish team. And, and Utah, we have no promise that Cam Rising's coming back. So these are absolutely the two teams. The fly in the ointment, though. Yes. The fly in the ointment is that little team that still doesn't have a conference, that Oregon State pesky beaver. That's the fly in the ointment because they get a shot at both of these teams. They do. As they're headed to the riches of the Big Ten. As does Washington State, who laid an egg on Saturday. Uh, but Washington State beat Oregon State earlier on in the season. All right, let's jump into what everybody's talking about in the reaction, the, the 48 hours, 24 hours since the game was played, the landing decisions. Let's go through them one by one. And I just want to give you, as the former head coach, the opportunity right. to say, hey, it's easy now, even though a lot of us said it at the time, to sit back and look at these three big decisions that he made. I watched the game with my brother, and we had dinner after the game, Rick, and he said, you know what's interesting? He made three very controversial decisions. If any one of the three, any one of the three would have worked out, they win the football game. He doesn't need two of the three to work out. He doesn't need three of the three. And the three decisions <laughs> are he doesn't take the three at the end of the half, goes for it even though he's getting the ball at the beginning of the second half, goes for it and misses from the three-yard line of the Huskies. He doesn't take the three down 11, at the UW eight in the uh, in the third quarter, and then the big one at the end on fourth down, he says, "You know what? I'm going for it. It's fourth and three. We've we've compiled 520 yards. We're not letting Penix get on the field. We're winning it right here on fourth and three. And of course, that doesn't work out. Any one of the three, Rick, goes his way, they probably win the football game. I only had fault with one of them." I only had fault with one decision, and that was the, the decision at the end of the half because it wasn't even fourth down. It was third down. There was no time to do anything other than just go for it, right? It just made no sense. Take the points. It's 22-18. 22-18. Yeah, just, kick, just make it 22-21 and go in at halftime with feeling good about a, a, uh, a trip that ended up in points. That one was the only one that I felt rushed, and I felt like Bo Nix talked him into it. Oh, I think I because Bo Nix is over there. Let us go. Let us go. And you have to at that point just go. We're going to come away with points. We're not winning the game here. We're just staying in the game. This is a hell of a game. And we're going in with some momentum. There's nothing. And we get the yeah, ball the, to start the second half. That's big. There, we get three. That's and then right. We there's it, yeah. there's no lack of chivalry when you when you take a field goal there. You just take the take the points. Uh, that's the only one. I love that he went for it at the end of the game. You do. I love that he went for it at the end of the game. Absolutely. Because 
you have a chance to end the game. You have an opportunity to absolutely end the game there. And he took his shot to do so. And had you punted, Michael Penix is going to bring the team right back down the field. It was exactly the same feeling as I stood up late watching that nightmare in Colorado. Yeah. As Stanford was, was, you know, going up and down the field in the second half, down 29 nothing at halftime. The clear side of the ball that Deion Sanders has at his advantage is the offense. Win the game with the offense. He had it third down and three, missed a pass. Yeah. Then go for it on fourth down. Yeah. But you did. So, the only one I disapproved was at the end of the at half. At the end of the half, which and you say that you think that Knicks may have talked him into it, which would, which would uh, poke holes in the theory that I was going to give you, which is Lanning with all of these decisions, they had a common thread, which is we're going there to score points and we're not settling for field goals. We're going there to be aggressive, and if I get to a certain point on the football field. I'm going for touchdowns. I may not go for touchdowns from the 30 and the 35 and the 25, but when I get inside the 10 and when I get inside the 5, I'm not going to win this game, Rick. Maybe this was the coaching staff's decision when they got on the plane to Seattle. We are not going to win the game against Washington there, kicking field goals from inside the 5-yard line. Is it possible that's just the way they felt the game was going to go? There is a new generation of coaches including Dan Lanning, Kenny Dillingham, who is his offensive coordinator now at Arizona State, much of these youngsters that are following the idea of analytics, Moneyball guys, right? Uh, we all remember the movie Moneyball that right. uh, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, all of a sudden figured out we just need guys on base, right? What Guys who walk are winners and found ways to do it on the cheap and so forth. Moneyball has transcended into every sport. And in football, it is really uh, availed itself in the decision to go for it on fourth down. We see people doing it all the time. Ridiculous. And the idea is over the course of time, the percentages will tell you that you're much better off by just keep going for it because you're going to make it this many times. The problem with analytics in a football game is you don't get over the course of time. You get that game. And that game has different players playing those positions that you're determining whether or not you can make that first down. Right. It is a cover story for the coach when he goes into the press room at the conclusion of a game that says, hey, the book says this. The book says this. The book says that. I remember Chris Peterson said our card when he went for it on uh, yes. or ran the ball yes. late in the game against Arizona says, and Tucson. Yeah. Yeah. The card said we needed to run the ball. Yeah. I was working for the Pac-12 network and then I'm saying, get a new card. <laughs> that, that was a wrong decision. That is wrong. You had the game won. The, the idea is to elicit victory. So it's a now the coach has defense when it's going forward on fourth down. The coach has no defense when it's a math equation like we saw with Mario Cristobal right, uh, right, the last week. Right. The, the, these these are decisions you have to make. Right. I tell you, I'm okay with every decision he made, except, aggressive as they were, except, except the, the, the one at the end of the first half. Okay, so we tend to focus on the decisions, these three decisions. Go for it or punt, go for it or kick the field goal. What we don't do as often is talk about the other part of it, which is, Okay, what did they call? What was right. the play? What was the execution? You did know, did you have the right call? And, right. and he's and Dan Lanning said each time we liked what we saw, we had a timeout to call it off if we didn't like the look. Uh, and so you trust him on that. So you liked 
The calls. All the calls. I, I'm going to tell except, you. Except DeBoer's on fourth and one when you're. Well. Listen, these guys who live in the shotgun, these guys who live in the shotgun and, and are throw it first type of coordinators. Yeah. On the one yard line, it boggles my mind how you start that play catching the ball on the five when you've gotten yourself to the one and yeah. we can now push well, quarterbacks into the end zone. Right, we can. We can. We can well, do there's it legally. Another, there's also another part to that DeBoer series that you need to talk about as well, that we need to yeah, talk about. Fourth and six. Well, he went for it. Well, he went for it on fourth and six, but here's the deal. After he got it on the one fourth down, he runs. Which I was saying he should have kicked. There you, Just, go. I, there you go. I make these. I I cannot watch a game without making every head coach decision. <laughs> I cannot. I, but, it's in my but, blood. But here's the deal: when he misses on fourth and one, you're talking about how do you catch the ball at the five and shotgun? What I'm writing on Twitter is how do you run four plays on first and goal and not let the quarterback, the Heisman Trophy quarterback, make a play in any... They were all running plays. There were wildcats. There were inside handoffs. The guy never gave him a... Now, he was banged up. He was having trouble get catching his breath and what have you, but Michael Penix doesn't get a chance with the football to throw it on any one of those four downs, Rick. That's a fact. He uh, and, and they were running zone, which means the offensive line was moving laterally rather than coming downhill. Uh, and that's just part of your inventory. The, the goal line portion of the offense, they, the, the theory is by these coaches who live in shotgun is we're going to do what we do rather than try to do something that's not. He can he can play action from the one. Dan Marino yeah, there, threw 120 touchdowns in his career from the one-yard line. You well, there's throw, no question. You yeah. can throw your fades and you can throw your back shoulders and all that still works, and they have offense. But uh, I'm not questioning the play calling. They go to all the practices. What I'm questioning is points and points. how many possessions points. you have. Points. And uh, just staying ahead of that okay. as, as, and not getting into the emotion of the game. So let's go back to the decision not to punt. Subsequently giving the short field to Washington. They score on two plays. We've all seen it by now. I've begged you in the past. I'm going to try again. The Mitch Levy, if you ever get back into coaching, promise me that you'll implement the Mitch Levy fourth down, let's call it... um, fourth down look I don't care what the play is the play on fourth down when when he didn't punt at the end of the right. game why don't more teams in that situation when when they lined up my brother again watching with me said the first thing out of his mouth which is the first thing that out of everybody's mouth is oh they're not going to snap it they're just going to try to draw him off sides here maybe get five yards and the game's over and then they'll either call timeout and they'll punt there's a lot of people thinking that. So why right. not? And I've tried this with you before. Why not? Whatever play you call, practice the quarterback coming up and looking like he's just trying to draw him off sides. Hut, hut, and then he stands up tall. And he looks at people. Hut, hut, and then he stands up tall. And I've he done waits. It. I've and, done and exactly waits, what you said. And he waits so long that the defense starts yelling, don't move, they're just trying to draw us. And then... At one second, when everybody's thinking, oh, he's not snapping the ball, then snap the ball and run the play. Why I've, won't people I've run the it. Mitch Levy? I want that. 
So bad. I've done it. I ran that play. And it, we called it Army and Navy. We did it in the Alliance of American Football. I said, we're going to look like we're faking. We're going to do the motion. We're going to call the motion again. Everybody's going to think that it's done. Right. And all of a sudden, when, when uh, he says Army, we're going. <laughs> and and but, but nobody runs it. It's a it's a second cousin. It's a distant cousin of what Marino did against the Jets a million years ago, which where, is the where yeah, he threw the, the yeah, fade right. on the clock play. It looked right. like he's going to spike that, it. It's just the, a second cousin of that. Is that what? against the Jets? That was, was against, that against the, Jets. the Jets. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 So I, nobody wants to. No. All right. So if they played again, you've seen it the first time around. You saw right. it at, at Washington with the crazy crowd. Now, the next time if they would play, it would be a more sterile Allegiant Field or Allegiant Stadium, whatever they call it in Las Vegas, if these two teams play again. again I don't I'll, think sterile. I think every crowd, every every fan that loves Oregon and Washington would okay. find their way to Vegas. Okay. I think they would. Yeah. Okay. Again, I'll bring my brother into it. I said to him, what would you, what would you think about the rematch? And he, his answer was, you know, I don't think Washington played their A game. I think Washington played their... C plus game. I don't think Penix was as good as he normally was or is. He was fine. He was good. He he's still in the Heisman. Tr and for that reason, I think Washington. This is him talking. I think Washington would win the next time too because I think they've played better than they actually played on on Saturday against Oregon. Do you think Washington played its best game? I thought Washington played well. I thought Oregon played well. I thought Oregon had a lot to do with why Washington didn't look like Washington in previous games. I think uh, these okay. two teams are really evenly matched. It was 37-34 last year, 36-33 yesterday. Yeah. If we go to Las Vegas, 39-36, you <laughs> pick your winner. I'm just telling you, that's what's going to happen. These, This is a monster oh, matchup, God. and fingers crossed that we get to see oh, it again. Gosh. Wow, wow, wow. So how about national championship playoff ramifications with these two teams? Obviously, Oregon now has its work cut out for them because of the one loss. Can Washington slip between now and the finish line and win the Pac-12 championship and still get in there? Or do you think that they got to run the table with what's happening with Ohio State and Michigan and the SEC and Georgia and all those teams. I think a one-loss Washington team that you know loses but still gets to the Las Vegas and then wins the championship can still be in the playoff. Yeah. I think a one-loss Washington team, if it's in fact Oregon, and it's the result that I just said, 39-36 Oregon, and both end up with one loss, one and one in their matchups, I think both could be in. Now that will require, you know, some some machinations elsewhere. Sure. Right. We, you know, oh, we can't have an undefeated big 12 champ. Right. We can't have a, uh, uh, you know, two teams out of the big 10 that end up with just one loss, an undefeated and a one loss big yeah. 10 yeah. situation. Yeah. So, uh, but I think both teams have earned the respect of the country and the college football playoff committee who have yet to convene. I think they uh, have earned it. And if they play like they've played, do so now in some environments that will be difficult and have been regarded as difficult by the national media. I, I think that uh, a one loss Washington team would very be very comfortable. Before we get to the player or the coach or the college person of the week and your pick for this week, quick thoughts on three items. You mentioned USC. You have been saying to me beautifully all along, Mitch, 
USC is not one of the top three teams in the Pac-12. You thought Washington was better. You thought Oregon was better. And you thought Utah would be better if they got Cam Rising back. And USC goes to Notre Dame and does that. What happened on Saturday night? They were bully balled. They were just not physical in the lines of scrimmage. Their offensive line couldn't protect Caleb uh, Williams, and he uh, threw errantly because he was off his spot. I mean, he's a heroic type of player. He had to throw it to give themselves a chance, and he threw it uncharacteristically three times to the opponent. So scratch him from the Heisman race. Scratch him from the Heisman race. Scratch him from the Heisman race, and scratch uh, USC from the conversation in in the uh, Pac-12 until they prove otherwise. And they can prove otherwise this week against Utah. Yeah, and they get Oregon. I think they get both Oregon and Washington, too. they, They get both Oregon and Washington. Washington at home, and they come to Eugene. So that those those games, they get a chance, a do over of sorts. But Lincoln Riley has to say we're doing something wrong. It's been too evident that they are not physical enough. It's been too uh, evident that they are just playing kind of street ball with this savant quarterback. They've got to look more disciplined. They've got to look more together and they've got to look more organized if they're going to factor. All right. How real is North Carolina? They play Duke. They play Clemson down the stretch. No FSU except for a, a conference championship game. Do you believe? Are you believing in North Carolina or not quite? I'm believing, and I think they benefit, as you pointed out, from a schedule situation. I'm believing because they just added a alpha at receiver. This Tez Walker who had been the subject of much acrimony, the NCAA saying he doesn't get to transfer twice and have his eligibility. North Carolina saying it should, the first transfer shouldn't have counted because the kid, they weren't playing during COVID at North Carolina central. Uh, Now the NCAA says, well, now you've given us new information, North Carolina, Bubba Cunningham, their athletic director saying we gave no new information. It, somebody's lying here. Somebody's giving us a, <laughs> a false narrative, and I have no idea who it is. But Tez Walker's on the field, and Tez Walker made a huge difference yesterday as an alpha for Drake May. And if you have that, and remember, Drake May's a terrific athlete at that position too, and a defense that's much improved. Gene Chizik, the defensive coordinator there, North Carolina is a bona fide contender. But they'd have to run the table to get into the no? – No, I think they can get there with one loss. Really? I think they can get there with one one loss. loss. Okay. Make sense of Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State. Three of the top six teams in the country. They're going to all play one another. We know Michigan, Ohio State, I believe, is in Ann Arbor on November 25th. Before Before we get there, we've got Penn State going to Ohio State this week, and we've got Penn State hosting Michigan down the line. How is that all going to play out, do you think? We'll know much more after this weekend, but my sense is watching these teams that while Ohio State is gifted in skill, many of the guys nicked up, and I think we're saved this week in anticipation for the Penn State game. Guys like Travion Henderson, their running back, Mayan Williams, another running back, uh, Ibeka, Ibeka Ibuka, uh, the receiver. I think he's from Washington as well. Um uh, those kids were saved this week uh, to get ready for this Penn State game, but they're not as good as Penn State or Michigan in the trenches. Okay, So they are going to have to find a way to play a perfect game uh, with their skill, 
And the question is, can Kyle McCord do it? So I think the game's really going to come down to the Penn State-Michigan game. That's that's my gut right now. Taco time, 61 cent crisp tacos on Tuesdays in October, always celebrating and searching for new team members because they love people that are willing to do some work. Go online, tacotimenw.com, and be speaking with a Taco Time recruiter within minutes. Rick Neuheisel, do you want to kick or receive on the person of the week in college football that was doing some work. I'm going to give you the uh, opportunity to go first this time because you're no way going to take mine. And because mine is an obscure one, given where our eyeballs were yesterday, but, but a guy that uh, you're going to be hearing about. All right. You want me to receive, you're going to kick to me. I'm kicking. And I'll, I'll start with the person, the anti person of the week, the person who's definitely not getting my taco time, crisp taco. And that's the guy who runs Shador Sanders' Instagram, who in the middle of the game with Colorado winning big, decided to go on the Instagram account and start selling Sanders merchandise on Friday night because they were blowing out Stanford. You're Only, kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I can't make this he, up. Shadour Sanders was pedaling at halftime. Uh, yes. No, in the middle of the third quarter. Now, he has oh, a guy. He has a guy. They were selling merchandise because it was such a route. And uh, we know the rest of the story. It didn't end up such a route. But his, so that person does not get my Taco Time Crisp Tacos. But I'll have you know, Neuheisel. The guy who does get my crisp taco from Taco Time comes from the same game on Friday night. Oh, he was doing some work. The referee on Friday night <laughs> who scolded the PA system and PA announcer for playing music while Stanford was trying to call its signals and warn them, you do it again over the loud system, you do it again, and we're charging you 15 yards against Colorado. I like the style of that referee. I, you don't see referees scolding PA announcers very often over the loud system. I say, and I don't even know who the Pac-12 official or referee that was doing that game on Friday night, but he, he, my friend, was doing some work scolding the PA announcer, and he gets my 61-cent crisp taco this week. As well he should. As well he should. Earlier this year, I think it was uh, Stanford at USC early in the season where Stanford obviously jumped off sides, and they said there is no penalty for jumping off sides. The band was still playing. (laughs) (laughs) When did we ever give a do-over because the band was still playing. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. Last year, uh, as we look back towards that last season's uh, college football, the the little train that could became TCU. Uh And it became a quarterback by the name of Max Duggan, who started the season on the bench. Chandler Morris was the quarterback. He got hurt. He came off the bench and the rest was history. It didn't end up quite as uh, the glass slipper didn't fit so beautifully uh, when they got to play Georgia. But other than that, it was a Cinderella story. The other night uh, we found out that Chandler Morris is hurt again. So in comes a youngster by the name of Josh Hoover, Josh Hoover. Now TCU has lost two in a row. They'd lost to Texas tech, or excuse me, to West Virginia where they had two field goals blocked. Then they went on the road and got beat by Iowa state. And here they are uh, playing against BYU. Josh Hoover, the backup quarterback, goes 37 (laughs) of 58. 37 of 58 and throws for over 400 yards and put that name in your 
memory banks. Okay. Josh Hoover is might be changing the fortunes of TCU. It's like a do over. And Chandler Morris, the poor kid, he has to get hurt for it all to happen. Oh, but uh, goodness gracious, Josh Hoover and the TCU Horn Frogs were doing some work. I want to back up Chandler Morris and whatever I do the rest of my life. Let's just put exactly. it that way. All right, exactly. The last time you and I were together were two weeks ago. You were two and two heading into that weekend in your picks. I told you to quit. You didn't quit, and you told me Texas was going to beat Oklahoma. Oklahoma in a crazy, exciting college football game beat Texas and made you a loser and dropped you under five hundred to two and three. So two weeks later is your opportunity to get back to even, Stephen five hundred. Where are we headed, Rick Neuheisel? While we were away, we saw one of the absolute head coaching blunders of our of our generation. It was Joe Prasarjic canning to Larry Zonka all over again. <laughs> the miracle in the Meadowlands, <laughs> yes. Uh, but it was even worse because it had been done before. Not This was not the first time. At one time, when you, when you just pull a completely klutzy move and you live to tell about it, you you swear to yourself that will never, never happen, happen again. again. And yet there it was on full display as Mario Cristobal decided to hand it off with the game in hand. <laughs> and the fumble, of course, occurred, which then by Bartman principle, of course, Steve Bartman, yes. you knew the karma gods were going to get, yes. give you the yes. absolute, you know, my There was no <laughs> chance to survive that. And two plays later, right. there is Haynes King getting thrown a touchdown pass. And he ended up making one loss, too. They go on the road. They get beat by North Carolina. Carolina. They now come back to a disgusted home crowd where Clemson is coming to town. Oh, okay. Clemson heading to play at Miami. Clemson is a two-point favorite. Small favorite. Give me yeah. the Tigers. Give me the Tigers. You think the Miami season is in the tank is what you're it's, really saying. I just saw Mario's face in the North Carolina game. This is a maniacal. This guy's on edge. He has been through it. It's a rough spot. He put it on himself, uh, but he's not getting out of it. He's not sleeping through a full night until February. Clemson minus the you. points. Clemson minus the points for Rick's pick this week. Rick Neuheisel presented by Taco Time Northwest. Thank you, Rick. Talk to you next week. See ya. Hey, look who it is. Lindsey Schwartz, Daniel's Broiler, my favorite steakhouse during the summer and any time of year. How are you, Lindsey? How's everything at Daniel's Broiler? Hey, Mitch, doing great. Yeah, it's summertime. We've been so fortunate to have such beautiful weather, have a beautiful summer, July, August. Yep. That means we get to open all the decks and patios. Busy, busy, busy. So let's keep up this great weather. What I can tell you is that when my buddy, old friend Mark Kalkavecchia comes to town the golfer for the Boeing Classic. He's not even in SeaTac Air. I think he's still on the plane when he texts me, hey, can you help me out with Daniel's broiler? Can you help me out with Daniel's broiler? It's a favorite of the golfers that come for the Boeing Classic, isn't it? It really is. A few years ago when Jerry Kelly won, he came into Daniel's to celebrate afterwards, and I was nice. there and saw him and talked to him a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I think the word is out. That's the place to go if you win the tournament. Too bad I didn't teach you a little about the game of golf while he was there. Did you meet him? Did he no tips? Oh God, that yeah, I, that would be a full time job. He already has a job. I don't, I don't think he has time for that. All right, last time you were on, you talked desserts. I want to focus on appetizers this time around. It's a little controversial in the way that I never want to eat too much before the steak arrives. 
but you have such good appetizers. I'm torn on that. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, we, we try to keep them light. So we make that decision easy for you. We don't want to fill you up on the appetizers, but we just try to make them delicious. And I think we've done that. I know that I know you've talked about the scallops, how you love, I love that the one. scallops. Yeah, the bacon wrapped scallops. Yes, they're so good. I think it's something unique that we do. We, we pick the big jumbo scallops. We wrap them in bacon. We put them on the broiler. It's just a really unique flavor. You get the Sambuca butter sauce, serve it on top of crostini. You got good taste. Those are really, really good. How about some of the other appetizers? I know from experience, the popcorn shrimp has gone from a a Levy boy's favorite as their main course to now they just get a couple of orders before their steaks as they eat me out of house and home. What about some of the other appetizers? Yeah, I mean, the popcorn shrimp are awesome. I think really what makes them is the sauce. It comes with two sauces, the yes. sriracha aioli, which is spicy and delicious, and the lemon aioli is really, really good. And yeah, I've told you before, my kids love that too. Even even now they're grown up, they still got to have it. And your favorite is the crab leg? Yeah, I like the crab legs. I mean, the cool thing about it is if you love crab like I do, but you don't like to have to work for it and crack the crab and wear a bib, they're already shelled. We, we take the, the crab legs out of the shell, the big fry leg, which which is the biggest leg on a crab. Right. And uh, we serve that in a Dijon mustard sauce. Yeah, that's been my favorite. I love that so one. So I guess the uh, the moral to the story is, even if you're not in the mood for a big giant steak, you can go to Daniel's, have a drink, and feast on the appetizers and enjoy some of the great views of the Pacific Northwest. We love Daniel's Broiler. World-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. was watching and the University of Washington survived Oregon 36-33 in a thriller chock full of storylines that's one year after 37-34 no better place to read all about it than on Montlake I'm a subscriber my hands raised from Christian Capel Christian steps in to episode 258 of Mitch Unfiltered how are you Christian tired a little bit. I mean, it was a 12:30 kick, so you know we can't really complain about that. Got got home in a reasonable amount of time. Went to bed on time, so okay. that's right. that's that's what you that's uh, what you're always hoping for, right? You know what else you're hoping for in sports, and it doesn't matter whether it's football that you cover or baseball that you love. You're always hoping for a game that lives up to the hype, and it happens so infrequently. Whenever we get excited about something, inevitably there's no way. It can, it can get over the bar. And I, dare I say on Saturday that the 36-33 game lived up to the hype in every sense of the word? Yeah, I mean, if, if that game didn't live up to the hype, then no game ever has. <laughs> you know, I mean, two undefeated teams, both in the top 10. It's a rivalry. It's the first time they've ever met as top 10 teams. It's on ABC with their number one crew. Like you said, game day's there. Um both teams have have reasonable playoff hopes. Both teams have potential Heisman candidate quarterbacks and everybody showed up. Michael Penix Jr. Uh, didn't play his very best game, but was still really good. Still made huge plays in big moments. Bo Nix was really good. Put, gave Oregon every chance to win that game. Yeah, I think it's kind of underrated 
that they drove to Washington's 25-yard line on the last possession. They still put together a drive to keep themselves in the game, give themselves a chance at overtime. Um, Sold-out crowd. The atmosphere was was really incredible. You know, I've been to a lot of games at Husky Stadium, but but the whole package on Saturday, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything. I was going like that it. was my second question. I, I, you you beat me to the punch. I don't know how many of these games you've seen. Did it remind you of any other game? Were you sitting there closing your eyes and visualizing? Yeah, either a game in New Heisel's tenure or even going back further. Is there is there a game that it reminded you of? I don't know that it reminded me of any particular game in terms of atmosphere at Husky Stadium. The way the game played out was very similar to Washington's game against Oregon last year yeah. at Autzen. Yeah, um, you've got a, a, a late drive by Oregon where they've got a chance to to ice it right put it away and they can't quite get it done and the door's just open enough for Washington Michael Penix makes a, a big throw in in the end and um, there's a field goal involved in, in the final minute this time it's it's missed by Oregon's kicker instead of made by Washington's kicker um, Oregon kind of ran the ball successfully all game didn't ever really get stopped and and put up a bunch of yards and still couldn't come out on top. So there, there were a lot of similarities to last year's game in, in Autzen. It, as far as an atmosphere at Husky yes. Stadium and just like a total vibe, yes. I, I don't know that it, it really? has it was a, that good. a real direct comparison. Yeah. It was that good. Did you feel like that the crowd had an impact on the game, on the result? Maybe a little bit, but I look, Oregon kind of did what it did. Right. They moved the ball pretty efficiently. Um, I think they definitely were the most talented defensive team that Washington's seen so far this year. They lost a couple cornerbacks to injuries, which didn't help. Um, they pressured Michael Penix Jr. like no team has. So I think they showed up in the ways that you kind of expect an Oregon team to show up. And, you know, rather than Oregon being overwhelmed by the atmosphere, maybe it was it was what gave Washington, you know, that little extra boost, that little extra juice to pull yeah. it out in the end. I just asked Neuheisel this question. I'll ask you the same because you made a comment a few moments ago that Penix didn't play his best game. And I've been, since the end of the game on Saturday, thinking about a rematch in Vegas in the Pac-12 title game, which when you look at the other Saturday results, you start to think, well, we really could see these two teams again. And you wonder whether the, the result would be different. Penix did not play his best, you just said. He threw for 300 yards. He threw for four touchdowns. And when the game was on the line, he threw the big touchdown pass. He certainly didn't play his way out of the Heisman by any stretch. He's still the, the leader. But you're right. He didn't play his best. How much of that, though, was about Oregon and what they did defensively? And could we assume that if they played in whatever they call that place, Allegiant Stadium in Vegas, that he would play better, or does Oregon defend him better than everybody else? Yeah, it, it's an interesting thought. It is kind of a funny way to put it, right? This was this was not one of his better games this season, but still was like a, a strong case for him to be the Heisman front runner. So, what does that say about how good he is? Um, it should be noted too; he was cramping pretty badly throughout the the fourth quarter. There. I think people watching on TV probably had a better idea of that, um, being able to kind of see him grimacing and such. So. Look, you know, I, I think Oregon's front is really good. I think they pressure the passer really well. Um, not just, you know, he, it was not like he was sacked a bunch of times, but they batted down, what, three or four passes, right? They they forced another couple incompletions where there was somebody in his face and he had a guy open, but he had to throw it maybe a little earlier than he wanted and he was rushed. Ryan Grubb and, and Washington's offensive coaching staff, you know, obviously would would try to 
counter whatever they saw from Oregon's defense and and make their own, you know, turn it into their own chess game. But I think if these teams played again in Vegas, you'd just see another really, really good close game between two really good teams. I, I, I don't think Washington proved it was the best team in the Pac-12 necessarily. Um, it proved that it, it should be considered the foremost playoff contender right now. But I think there's a top tier in that league. I think it's Washington and Oregon. And, you know, yeah. I think they're really evenly matched. Yeah. The other thing that you didn't mention about uh, Penix's performance is it became clear when the game started, to me at least, you may tell me I'm wrong, that the whole plan all along with Jalen McMillan was to get him ready for the Oregon game. Going back the last bye week and then the games before that, he's out there to start the game and is like it's like Jamal Adams. One series and he's finished. What's the what's the latest on him? Yeah, so Kalen DeBoer said that um, he was he was dealing, I think, with the same injury is what it sounds like. So I I do think they kind of had Oregon as the game that hey, okay, give him give him the two weeks and the bye week, and he'll be ready to go. And he looked ready to go in warmups. He wasn't limited, uh, like you said. I mean, he was out there for that first series, and yeah, he must have he must have just tweaked it or something because you didn't see him after that. The story of the game nationally. And this is what makes sports so damn interesting for guys like us who either write about it or talk about it is the coaching decisions. I mean, we're not getting out of the way of the coaching decisions anytime soon. And I'm not just talking about landing. I'll go to DeBoer and Grubb and their decisions to go forward and their decisions on that four down series where they didn't let Penix throw the ball while they ran it four times from inside the six or seven yard line and they failed to get in, didn't take points. Of course, Lanning, there's a bunch of them. Didn't take points. Neuheisel criticized that. Neuheisel said, I love the I love the play at the end where he doesn't punt because he's trying to win the game right there and not give Penix the ball back. I applaud that. What Neuheisel didn't like was, you got to take the three at the end of the half because you're getting the ball at the beginning of the second half and you're down four right there. So much momentum lost. What about the, the post-game scuttlebutt from where you sat over there at Husky Stadium and all these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I saw the fourth down at the end of the first half. I saw Bo Nix just, I don't know if the, I haven't watched the TV copy yet, but I don't know the TV show. He was just just begging to go for it. That's what I mean, Neuheisel said. Neuheisel Let's said go. that he thought that Penix, he thought that, sorry, Nix convinced Lanning to go for it on fourth down. Yeah, so maybe he did, but I remember I saw that and I thought, boy, that'd be, that'd be a play here. Is he going to do it? And yeah, I would have kicked. I mean, I, I understand the aggression. I, I generally, I like that football has evolved to the point where coaches treat each possession like they're precious and don't approach fourth down. Like, hey, you know, it's not a rule that you have to punt on fourth down, right? Like you can go for it. You can try to keep the ball. You don't have to give it back to the opponent. Yeah. I like that that's become the attitude. Um, but in that situation, you, you got a chance to go into half down one, getting the ball back. You love going for two on touchdowns. You score a touchdown, go for two. You could be up seven. Maybe they're thinking they're so confident that, well, but if we score a touchdown, you know, then it's a two score lead. If we score another one, right. I try not to be too overly critical of coaching decisions. I think deep down, every fan wants to go for it on fourth down. Every of course, fan of course. wants to score a touchdown. And if it works out, you don't really Funny. see it criticized. So I have a hard time, but yeah, I, the, the one, and I probably disagree with people on a lot of people on this. I did think going forward at the end was, was a, a little more iffy just because Washington's offense hadn't been moving it. Well, you could tell Penix was hurting. They would have been out of timeouts. You force them to go the length of the field. They have to score a touchdown. Um, I totally understand though, 
not wanting yeah. to voluntarily give the ball back to Michael Penix Jr. when you don't have to, when you can so win it with true. three yards. So, so I, true. Razor thin margins. It's a handful of those. That's always going to decide it. Right. It's funny as you're speaking right now, you, you probably are unaware. There was a guy, a high school coach in Arkansas years and years ago who was featured in Sports Illustrated. He had won like five Arkansas state titles, big state titles, high school football. He came on our radio show back in the KGR days. And he, I had I don't know that I got more reaction from any other guest than this guy because his his routine was I don't punt. I don't punt. I don't even carry a punter. I go for it on fourth down every single time. And everybody laughed and giggled. This is like 10 years ago on KJR. 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Now, I mean, we're not to that point yet. But nobody's calling that guy crazy anymore. It's amazing how how it's a four-down series now. Guys are making calls. Offensive coordinators are calling their third-down plays differently because in their mind, this is not really third-down like we used to think it is. That was one thing we didn't see yesterday was an onside kick that we saw in, in <laughs> Eugene last year. And Oregon pulled it off in the big game against UCLA last season and, and stole a possession. And I was this this was the type of game that was kind of begging for that, right? Crazy. Like there was a stretch there where neither defense could get off the field. But I think it's a credit to the rise of analytics and statistics. And, you know, coaches have a, a much better understanding of uh, what the odds are and, and what gives them a better chance to win a game. And, you know, there's still individual um, circumstances, the feel of the moment that goes into it. But uh, I, I think it's better for the fans, right? Everybody grew up playing Madden. Everybody grew up playing NCAA, the, the video games. You didn't punt. You went for it on fourth down. That's what you want to see on television, right? <laughs> Christian Capel on Montlake. So let me ask it to you this way. Let's assume on fourth down where you would have punted. I would have, by the way, I, I want to say for the record, I would have punted too, but I understand it. And I, and I actually admire it a little bit. The ball's there. He's saying, look, I've got 515 total yards. We've done everything we wanted to do offensively. We're averaging, what they average? Eight yards a play, seven yards a play. It's fourth and three. They've got the Heisman Trophy winner. Let's go win the game right here on their field. Let's go. So I admire it. I admire the balls of the play. Let's say that play works. They get the first down. They run out the clock. They win the game. What's the reaction after the game? What's the storyline after the game? Is it the is it the DeBoer run the ball all four downs? One of them was a wildcat, as I recall. Take the ball out of your Heisman Trophy's hands, Heisman Trophy candidate's hands on all four of those plays. What is what are we talking about this morning after that game? Yeah, I do think that goal line series would be a lot more scrutinized. I kind of wonder. I think that was the possession where Penix was was cramping was. the worst. He was was hurting the worst. I, and it'll be interesting to see if if DeBoer uh, goes into it in more detail at some point. But I, I wonder if if his health wasn't a consideration there. But yeah, I mean, Tybo Rogers, a true freshman running back who hadn't played to that point, gets the carry on fourth down. That that would get a lot more attention. Um, you know, I think just their their tackling defensively Terrible, would get right? more Missing attention. Tackle all over the place, right? Yeah, it didn't seem like they ever brought Bucky Irving down on the first try. And look, Bucky Irving's really good. He's really elusive. You saw that all last season. Um, he might be the most underrated player in the conference, frankly. Uh, so yeah, I think there'd be a lot more talk about the defense and about that, that forward. But, you know, hopefully... 
there still would just be a lot of focus on these were two really good teams who played an awesome football game. One of them had to lose. And, you know, I wrote this before the game that that the loser was not going to be eliminated from anything, right? That you mentioned a rematch in Vegas. One loss still keeps you in the playoff race, at least in theory. So um, it'll, it'll be fun to see if, if they maybe meet again. So final question. And I'm not letting you off the hook here. You got to stick your neck out. If they played in Vegas this coming Saturday, who do you like? I think it'd be, it's really hard to uh, <laughs> beat Come a really on. good team two weeks in a row. Yeah. So I, I would probably favor Oregon. I mean, I think the point spread would too, right? Washington wound up in that two and a half to three range, yep. which tells you it's about a pick them on a neutral field. Um, I don't like, I, th- I think there were reasons for Oregon to come out of that game feeling like it, it could have and should have won. But look, Washington also led by 11 points with possession of the ball in the, thir- in the third quarter, which I think if you told any Husky fan before Take the that. game that that would be a, a real I scenario. I thought the game was over at that point i thought they'd the taken that in a yeah. heartbeat yeah. so i would i would probably go i would probably go with oregon on a neutral field right now but uh it's close would you mind covering it <laughs> it'd be fun yeah <laughs> ladies and gentlemen on montlake christian capel does a fabulous job i'm a very happy subscriber subscribe now all the way through the stretch run and we'll see how far this washington team will go christian as always thank you so very much Thank you. Hey, it's time for a little visit from Zeke's president, Dan Black. How's your summer been, Dan? I feel like you're somewhere different every time I reach out to you. It seems that way probably because I am a lot. The Black (laughs) family's fortunate to have a bunch of great family spots for the summer. And I have been in Seattle a lot, partly for work, but also my favorite thing this summer is that my neighborhood Little League is making Uh, a run to the Little League World Series. Ah, Northeast Seattle Little League and Shuey, huh? Yeah, no, I heard you had Shuey on, but you know that he's just riding off the coattails of all of his past. (laughs) great nestle coaches so what they're doing is amazing and sports can be such a great source of community pride and here's a pizza guy that's going to plug another pizza place we've all been down at varlamos watching the games and you know the whole neighborhood's there and everybody's so proud and stuff but yeah what an awesome thing listen in your absence i've talked a lot about the new zeke's pizza app which makes delivery so easy from Zeke's. What's been the response, Dan? Um, The response has been good. All technology has its things and stuff, but when you just look at ratings and adoption, the new app has been a huge improvement over the old app. You know, the other thing that's been improved is just ordering straight online at Zeke'sPizza.com. So between the app and our online website, digital ordering has never been easier at Zeke's. The customer interfaces are really intuitive and easy to use and does the basic stuff like remember your past orders and stuff. So no, we feel like it's been a really good success. So football season is here and uh, you guys over at Zeke's love football season because football season kind of means pizza. What's pigskin 10? We get excited for football season at Zeke's. Yeah, like you say, because hey, we're football fans, but it is a great pizza season as well. And so you remember when we did March Madness, we did a promo called Hoops 10, which got you yeah, $10 yeah. off your order. And it was one of the most popular things we've ever done with customers and operators, Zeke's operators. And so we're going to do something similar for football season. And so, yeah, the code pigskin10 is going to be active all football season and on what we call football days. So on Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays and Thursdays all day, mm-hmm. pigskin10 will get you $10 off your Zeke's order. There's an order minimum of $30 after the discount, but it's good for delivery. It's good for pickup. It's good for in-house. If you're in-house, you just mention it to a crew member and they'll apply the discount. But yeah, no, Pigskin 10, it's going to be awesome. $10 off your order all football season on football days. That's great. Pigskin 10 
Enter it on the app or online, or if you go into the store, make sure you mention Pigskin 10 on a football day to your Zeke's Pizza representative. We love Zeke's Pizza homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Episode 258 continues. Other stuff segment. Hot shot. Scott, you want to kick or you want to receive? I'm going to go ahead and take the ball right here and let you know that we now have a new president and VP of Reebok Basketball. We can all rest easy now. That's right. Credentials into the building and everything. Who's the president of Reebok Basketball? I didn't even know that there was still Reebok Basketball. Is is D. Brown still (laughs) pumping up his shoes before the the slam dunk contest? What I didn't even know. Where he peeked out from underneath his forearm, that yeah, cheater. Yeah. <laughs> but it's probably right, and there's probably a reason why they hired Shaquille O'Neal as the oh. VP of Reebok. But his vice president, Alan Iverson. So those two <laughs> now have Reebok credentials to get into the building, and they're going to help things like you know community-based initiatives and athletic activations, and hopefully they get a good parking spot in the building. Just kind of funny thinking about those two having lunch at the Reebok headquarters. Game day comes to Seattle. Did you watch ESPN games? You did. How much of it? I watched probably an hour or so, hour and a half maybe. The pageantry, the hype, the fun, the signs, so fun. the signs oh. and the flags. There was a sign that said Otani. Come to Seattle in the uh, ESPN <laughs> yeah. game day crowd. Yep, that was awesome. And I still say, by the way, I still say that his injury that doesn't allow him to pitch next year helps Seattle if the Mariners ownership really wants him, which who knows whether they want him or not. But yeah. I think the Mariners have a much better chance of signing Shohei Otani should they want him now that he's a little bit damaged than they would have. They're b- better on the, uh, the last minute deals aisle. Of the grocery <laughs> store. You know the, right. Oh, sure. Yeah, half off. <laughs> half off. I'm yeah, telling you, the price, the price comes way down. If there's any franchise, by the way, that could sign a guy knowing that you have to wait a year for him to pitch, think about the Mariners, how they're constructed. If there's any mm. team that has the pitching pieces already in place where you're like, yeah. we don't need him to pitch. Sit out a year, heal, you can hit, you can hit your 35 home runs, you can DH for us, hit the 35 home runs, don't pitch, we'll pitch you in a year from now. The one team that's like a playoff caliber team that could actually do that and still survive is a team with all the pitching that the Mariners have. So I really believe that they've got a better shot, and this is all a bunch of shit, it doesn't matter, but they have a better (laughs) shot. At least there was a sign. Maybe that'll help. There was a sign in the crowd. By the way, when I was putting my notes together... I was deleting the ones from the last show, and I can't believe we were talking about the Mariners' season ending on the last time you and I were together. That feels like a year ago when oh that God. season ended. Doesn't oh it? God. I haven't thought about the Mariners in two weeks. Do you even know who's in the American League Championship Series? <laughs> I've, I've purposefully stayed away. The Rangers are in it, I think, right? Rangers. Well, it would be the other. It would be the a the other AL West teams. Yes, of course. Yeah. Just to uh, give it to us more. It's not enough that right. the Mariners can't make the playoffs and they're the last man out, <laughs> but both the Rangers and the Astros win both of their series and get to the the American League West is going to have the American League World Series competitor. Unbelievable. Since news broke that Olympic gold medalist Mary Lou Retton, you remember that name? No, I don't remember. Tell me who she is. <laughs> The first American woman to win all-around gold at the 1984 Olympics. America's sweetheart, for God's sakes, in Los Angeles. Yes. 
Well, she's battling a rare case of pneumonia and fans have flooded the spot fund account launched by her other daughter, this woman named McKenna. So people are stepping up. They, they wanted 50 grand. Last time I looked, it was at 365,000, 6,000 donors. So everyone is coming to the aid of America's sweetheart, Mary Lou Retton. Hopefully she gets better soon. Well, I had seen that she was on death's door or at death's door, but she made a great comeback. That's what I had seen on Saturday, that there were reports that she was improving dramatically on Saturday yeah. and Sunday. I hope those are true. Did you hear... Can we talk a little bit about the Friday night game between the Colorado, your Colorado Buffaloes? Oh, my God. I'm so mad. I saw the score. It was a 29-0 at one point. I was like, it's Friday night. I got nothing to do. Piper's out. I'm going to sit and watch me some college football. 29-0. I'm not going to watch that crap. Do you know what happened when it was 29-0 Colorado over Stanford? No. Shadur Sanders, the son of Deion Sanders, the great quarterback of Colorado, his Instagram, whoever the guy is, that's wrong, I'm not suggesting he was on the sideline posting Instagrams in the middle of the third quarter. But in the middle of the third quarter with them winning 29 nothing, his yeah. Instagram started offering celebratory merchandise for sale. Oh. So oh. whoever the dude was that runs Shador Sanders' Instagram may have, may have jumped, jumped the boat a little bit, maybe skipped ahead a little bit, because a 29-0 lead turned into a double overtime loss after the Instagram offer came out selling Shadur Sanders merchandise. So <laughs> Something tells me there will be a, a new person running the Shadur Sanders Instagram next week. I think that person is now looking to run somebody else's if anyone needs somebody. <laughs> and in the God. same game, for more other stuff, the same game, in the second half of that game, the official, the head referee, puts on his microphone and says, would the public address announcer please stop playing music while Stanford is in formation, ready to snap the ball? Any more playing of the music and sound effects will result in an unsportsmanlike conduct against Colorado. Please stop. Oh, I don't know gosh. that I've ever heard a referee no. admonish the PA announcer over the loud system. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't dress down by the refs as the PA guy. I loved it. Yeah, that's 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 not normal. It's turning into a, a freaking circus uh, at that place. All right, your buddy Jeff Bezos just spent seventy nine million dollars to buy his neighbor's nineteen thousand square foot house in Florida. Yes, a barrier island in Biscayne Bay that's chock full of billionaires like Tom Brady, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner. And quite frankly, I'm surprised your mom sold your childhood home. Mitch. <laughs> I feel kind of sorry for you that that's now uh, in the possession of Jeff Bezos for seventy nine million. Well, the original home that he bought and it's about 12 minutes from where I sit right now and a bunch of billion dollars away the original <laughs> home was like 68 million right so, so it yeah. wasn't enough that he bought the original home but he had to have the neighbor's home at 78 so what is it he's he's about a 147 million into into homes and just two homes in Miami so good for him yeah yeah a, a place he visits you know Two months out of the year, maybe. I don't even know. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. know. It's good to be here. I don't That's know if I you do realize know. this, Hotshot Scott, but things are not great for Russell Wilson in Denver. Have you heard that it's not going so well since he left Seattle for Denver? <laughs> I heard a little something about that, but fill me in if you don't mind. Well, they played on Thursday night, I'll have you know, and Russell okay. Wilson put up gaudy numbers of under 100 yards passing against <laughs> the Chiefs and two interceptions. And the coach, oh. Sean Payton, said after the game, quote, to win in our league, you've got to be better at throwing the ball. That's all I have to say. 
So, <laughs> man, we got Russell Wilson stinking. Yeah. And we've got Sean Payton throwing him under the bus at every possible time. Just a fun little disaster to watch from afar happening in Denver with Russell Wilson. It just is not smooth. It's not gone smooth there. <laughs> it's just a mess. And I'm actually embarrassed of how funny I think it is. Because don't be. He's the only guy that, that brought a Super Bowl to my life as a lifelong Seahawks fan. Sure I love Russell Wilson. He went to two and won one of them. I, I should be kissing that guy's feet any chance I get. And yet I have so much glee seeing him throw for 100 yards. He would have won back to back. Yeah. He would have taken you to back to back titles if somebody would have Crazy. just drawn up a running play at the at the right time. Literally, how many how many quarterbacks in history have won back to back titles? Two? Three? Right. Ever. I mean, this is... I mean, and now we just love his misery. Oh. His misery is pure, unadulterated <laughs> entertainment. You just can't get better than watching <laughs> Russell Wilson struggle in Denver. No, you cannot. It's hilarious. All right. An Ontario township is in the process of figuring out how to change the name of its most famous street due to the frequent thefts of signs bearing the name Harry Dick Road. Oh, now, John Henry... Harry Dick was born on his rural property in the township and all they did was try to like support the guy and give him his own his own road but of course the signs keep getting stolen that say Harry Dick Road so I'll let you guys know as soon as they figure out what they're going to name that that new road but if people ever stop thinking that's funny and ever stop doing that I think it's probably just time to move it along every time like the ship canal you know you've heard of the ship canal sure so when you're on the ferry, there's this big map. And of course, somebody has to always steal the little C for canal. Every time I'm on the ferry, I see it. And part of me, like, it's vandalizing. You shouldn't do it. But God, I'm so happy that people still think that kind of stuff is funny. The best is Bothell. Welcome to Bothell. You know, uh, what does it say? Welcome to Bothell for a day or a lifetime. And of course, somebody steals the BOT every time. Welcome to hell for a day oh. or a lifetime. I just, I love that shit. It makes me laugh so hard. So Harry Dick Road is right up there with all of them. I say congratulations to Lexi Thompson. The LPGA star played on the PGA Tour this past weekend. Did not make the cut, but did very nicely. Accounted very nicely for herself, I thought. 73-69. Even par over the first two rounds, missed a cup by three strokes, beat a bunch of, of PGA Tour pros, did not make the cut, but good for Lexi Thompson. I have uh, big Taylor Swift news for you. I know you you can't get enough. It appears know, that Taylor Swift has crashed at Travis Kelsey's home in Kansas City, Missouri. Thursday oh. night after cheering on the Kansas City Chiefs star in his game against the Broncos. Photos are making their way through the internet of the pop superstar security vehicles parked outside of Kelsey's home in Kansas City. According to the outlet, the SUVs are the same ones that were spotted picking her up from her private plane at the airport when she flew into town to see the Chiefs play the Denver Broncos. I purposefully stayed away from any Taylor Swift stories. There's only 5 million to choose from. Like, you know, her, 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 her movie opened up. People are going crazy in the theater, dancing like it's a goddamn concert. She, she shows up to one of them. Oh, Beyonce happens to be there with her. People are going nuts. $4.1 billion is the new figure. I'm hearing yeah. about her tour. And the, I love her. I can't. I, I, I have <laughs> fatigue. I'm out. Me too. Leave me alone, everybody. I can't do it.
Oh, my God. All right, finally, we can all sleep again. A 76-year-old Terry John Martin who pled not guilty to stealing maybe the most iconic piece of movie memorabilia ever is expected to change his plea to guilty on Friday because he had a crisis of conscience as his health is not great and he, I think, is staring down the barrel of uh, Hmm. mortality and said, you know what, I actually did steal it. Now, the question is, the most famous, most iconic piece of movie memorabilia ever is? is? I don't know. The ruby red slippers from the Wizard of Oz. Well, who determined that? That they're the most iconic piece? Yeah. I mean, there's probably a value. I, I know these, I think they said these will go for $3.5 million if really? anyone wow. wanted to buy them. But they were in a museum and then someone stole them. It was a big enough case for the FBI to get involved with. Wow. And the wow. fe- the feds actually recovered the shoes in 2018. And anyway, this guy is uh, not doing well in health. He said, you know what? You got me. I did it. I stole them. All right, before we get to the RIPs, and I don't even know why I'm bringing this up, but I read an article, and I just can't get my arms around the duo that apparently back in the day, somebody walked in with the two of them in bed. Oh, man. This was apparently uncovered on The View. I'm not a big View fan. You know who created The View, who's credited with creating The View. That'd be Barbara Walters. Apparently, someone walked in years and years ago on Barbara Walters in bed with Richard Pryor. Now, <laughs> come on, really? I'm just having <laughs> trouble with that visual. I, I, there can't be a more unlikely duo to end up yeah. in the throes of whatever it was, sex, than yeah. Barbara Walters and really Richard Pryor and Barbara Walters? Could you even close your eyes and do you even want to close your eyes and visualize that? <laughs> I just want to know, like... At some point, you have to talk to each other. Do they have a lot in common? I don't know. Like, I just, I'm sure she I, interviewed him on her special, probably more than one occasion. Yeah, I mean, they're not that far apart in age. They're 11 years difference. She's born in 29. He's born in 40. So the age isn't that... Well, I guess 11 years is pretty significant. I, I can't get my head around it either. I don't know. I just have all know. the people that that she has been, that that he's been with in his life. Well, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you asked me... What I think Barbara Walters' type is in a man. (laughs) And then you turn around and ask me, what do you think Richard Pryor's type is in a woman? I don't think think they would be on the same planet. There's just something... Richard Pryor oh. and Barbara Walters? Really? <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. It's a it's weird, a weird one. one. Oh, my God. Anyway, RIPs. Yeah, you got RIPs? Yeah, sad one. A college football player named Ronnie Caldwell. You've never heard of him, but he was a junior safety at Northwestern State University. He was shot and killed in Louisiana. Oh. Police say 21 years old. He's a Texas native. Was also a business administration major who helped coach a local youth baseball team over the summer. And police are still asking anyone with any information to please come forward on Caldwell's death. So rest in peace to a 21-year-old college football player. Okay. I got one more. Rudolph Isley. You know the name Isley? Well, I know the Isley, the Isley brothers. brothers. Yeah, I know the there Isley you go. brothers. Yeah. He was one of the brothers. Yeah, Rudolph started singing at a young age in his local church, and he's got siblings, Ronald, O'Kelly, and Vernon. When he was just a teenager, he started singing, and they moved to New York to record music, signing with RCA, and debuting their first song, Shout, probably one of their most significant tracks. It heard at every freaking wedding I've ever been to at some point in the night, right? And your hands up and shout. I think that was. I think that song was featured in the aforementioned 
back to school. I may be wrong about that. <laughs> it, it probably was. I, I may was be wrong about that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the Isley Brothers had, you know, this old heart of mine. That's a good right, one. And sure, it's your thing. Sure, and sure. anyway, uh, they also been sampled by Ice Cube and Notorious B.I.J. B.I.G. Anyway, Rudolph Isley, 84 years old. Rest in peace to him. Well, I've got four big ones. I'm surprised you didn't get any of these. Wow. Yeah, I I went to breakfast instead of prepping for the don't, show don't, on Sunday. So <laughs> don't forget that we don't forget that we haven't been together in two weeks, so we have two weeks worth of RIPs. Let's yeah, yeah. let's begin with the late great Dick Butkus. We haven't mentioned him. All oh, right, he Jeez, passed away at the ago. age of eighty. Arguably the fiercest monster of the Midway, the Football Hall of Famer, a nine-year career which started in nineteen sixty-five, resulted in only eight Pro Bowls. In nine seasons, he was one of the greatest players of all time from the linebacker position. He uh, he had to abruptly end his career because of knee problems at age 31 of 1974. Dick Buckus was 80. Do you remember the tight end, Russ Francis? Sure. Tight end of the New England Patriots and the San Francisco 49ers. One of two people who died after their plane crashed at Lake Placid Airport in New York last Sunday. He was a part of the Patriots in 1975. He won a Super Bowl with the 49ers. He was a three-time Pro Bowl selection. Russ Francis, age 70. You probably don't remember a PGA player from my youth, golfer by the name of Andy Bean, an 11-time PGA Tour winner, died at age 70 after double lung replacement. And then veteran actor, and I don't know that I've got the name pronounced right, but Michael Gambone, who was known to many for his portrayal of Hogwarts headmaster Albus Dumbledore in six of the eight Harry Potter films, died at the age of 82. So... There yeah, you go. he's definitely a, a big legend in the Harry Potter world. Is he? Man. He's, I haven't seen yeah. any of them, so I don't even know. Wisconsin Republicans want to make it a crime to be naked in public in Wisconsin. You know, I've seen my share of Packer fans, and I have to say, I completely agree with them. <laughs> a TikToker who uses tampons for the simplest way to soak up grease while cooking hamburgers, causing waves on social media. Please don't ask her how she makes her sloppy joes. Did you really suspect? Do- Hold on a second. I. I ran that one by my wife. I said, is this too much? And she said, yes. So I had to do it anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. A suspected bomb on a flight from Panama to Tampa turned out just to be an adult diaper. Thankfully, there was only one evacuation on that flight. And finally, a 44-year-old man was arrested after sexual escapades with sheep and a goat inside a school milking barn. The man has evaded the authorities and is officially on the lamb. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. I'm going to be here all week. Don't forget to tip your servers. Oh, the dogs are 6-0, and number five in the world. And the uh, Seattle Seahawks are now 3-2 and after a difficult-to-accept loss in Cincinnati. Who was at fault? Episode 258, ladies and gentlemen. Mitch Unfiltered is in the books.